Greetings and salutations. You are listening to the Into the North podcast, where we take a look at the competitive side of the Commander format, also known as CEDH. I am not your so frequent host, Null, aka Matt, and uh, today we have the fourth installment of the special episode series, where we'll be taking a deep dive into Mono U and more specifically Urza. Um, of course, I am joined by three special guests, uh, Eisenhers, Keegan, and Sinevi. So why don't we start by introducing ourselves? Uh, specifically, tell us a bit about like how you got into CDH and also how you picked up Blue slash Urza. Okay, should I start? Yeah. So my name is Eisenhertz. I'm from Germany. I used to play Standard or T2 competitively um, around Onslaught and Murden and the original uh, Ravnica block. And then I stopped playing Magic for over 10 years. I just got back into it last year, played some Pauper, saw that EDH was the new big thing, and then, yeah, just start from there, build a, a casual deck, then made it high-powered. Yeah, and then just started to play Urza because I found him so interesting. Hello, nice. my name is Keegan, and I've been playing Magic since 7th edition, where I played mostly kitchen table Magic when I... Went off to university, some friends picked it up, and naturally I said, oh, I've got some of that in an old box, brought it out, and realized uh, how bad I was. From then, <laughs> I played iteratively standard during the heydays of win-con-less blue-white control with Elixir of mm. Immortality. When all of that rotated out, I switched to modern, where I played Jeskai control, which I enjoyed immensely, before I discovered EDH and loved the variability of it and played a great deal with many of my friends, colleagues, and co-workers before stumbling into CEDH in large part due to the interaction I had with the host of this podcast. So thank you for showing me that. Yeah. And uh, since then, I've exclusively played Mono Blue CEDH and have uh, immensely enjoyed it. Nice. Cool. So uh, I'm... Cinevi, I have been playing Magic, oh, I don't know, since I was a small child. I I think, you know, similar to Keegan, maybe around 7th edition. I think the first set that I remember buying boosters of was actually Judgment. Um, but I played uh, I played a lot through college, and I played a lot of Vintage. Uh, so I grew up in the Northeast, and in the Northeast, uh, the, the um, NYSE scene was pretty strong when I was in college, and there were a lot of uh, vintage circuit tournaments, and uh, I spent a lot of time playing very aggressive, you know, like Drain Tendrils kinds of decks, uh, a lot of Painter Servant, a lot of, like, you know, Vault Key stuff, uh, but Blue has always been something that I've played a lot of, um, and as I, you know, as EDH became more popular, I found myself at a, in a lot of games where I was doing things that the other players were just not very happy with, um, you know, like specifically playing very aggressive cards or, or very redundant combos or easily tutored combos. Um, so for, for a while, there was a sort of, and I, I mean, and I don't know how many of the rest of the people in this podcast remember this time of, of EDH. Was, those were dark days, but um, the format was like new enough that CDH wasn't really a thing. And there was this like, constant friction around how high-powered you were allowed to play whatever deck you were playing. Uh, and I tended to always fall on the very uh, lean, low-to-the-ground, high-interaction, infinite combo side of the format. So I've been playing Mono Blue for um, a long time, and it just 
you know, it was a pretty easy transition from playing the edition to uh, CDH, and uh, I've always had some form of a mono blue uh, CDH deck together. Nice. I think one thing about mono blue that is funny is like a lot of the mono blue players like are very strict to the mono blue rule, or like when you kind of catch like I don't know the mono blue fever, you can't really <laughs> shake it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sure Keegan's going to talk about that 100. percent uh, it's a so, lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we'll be starting by going over kind of the history and philosophy of Mono Blue in general. Um, as I said, but we will be moving into Urza and kind of the nitty gritty as far as the card selection, piloting advice, and of course questions uh, from the listeners and, and other hot takes, you know. So um, do you guys want to give a, your shot at maybe kind of just talking about how Mono Blue works in CDH? Are you, are you, wait, wait! If you're gonna say if you're gonna say it works badly, <laughs> <laughs> so I think the the best best thing we have going for us, of course, is free interaction. So that's what gets added into every other deck that plays blue. But uh, the other thing we have is the strong synergy with artifacts. So we have like very good artifact tutors, and I think that's what the core of um, of mono blue does. So. Heavy interaction plus very synergistic with artifacts, and that's what draws me towards playing mono blue the most. There's a huge part of mono blue's identity, which is defined by its symbiosis with artifacts. And I think mono blue is best defined not by what it does well, but actually what it does poorly. And it mana ramps exceptionally poorly, with the single exceptions of ritual mana in the form of, of high tide there's very little ability for the color to get ahead on mana. And so baked into that is a reliance on the fast mana rocks. What this does mean is that much of the power of mono blue decks come from older printed cards. Uh, You're highly reliant on things like Mana Crypt, Grim Monolith, and what have you, things that are unlikely to see more printings, as well as many of the most broken blue cards because naturally having access to a much smaller card pool means that you're limited to playing only really the best of these types of effects, which uh, are, are rarely reprinted again. So while there is a discrepancy in power level between Mono Blue and some of the four and five color deck options that you can have, this has this has continued to widen and will, will likely that gap will become greater and greater as time goes on as a function of uh, the printing of commander-specific cards. I think, you know, just to, yeah. to add on to that, I, I think that in addition to the, the ramp aspect, uh, the, the synergy with artifacts and the reliance on and necessity of artifacts making Mono Blue a viable archetype also includes the fact that many of our best tutors are artifact-specific tutors, right? Like, even, even the cards that we have that can find things which are not artifacts... Don't put them into play, and generally will require more mana investment to have an immediate impact on the game, whereas things like Transmute Artifact can immediately put a relevant-to-everyone stacks piece or effect onto the board, like, you know, like Torpor Orb. Um, and I think that, you know, that is a very, very, very compelling reason to be building around artifacts in, in Mono Blue, especially. Um I think then you have also the the obvious piece, which is the the fact that we interact well with the stack. Um, 
you know, it's no secret to anyone. You play this format, decks are low to the ground. They do a lot of uh, interaction on the stack. Blue is exceptionally good at this. Um, I, but I think that the, you know, the relationship it has to artifacts are, are, is the primary reason you would play a mono blue deck because all of the free interaction that you have with the stack, many of the other archetypes in the format just jam anyway. So it's, it's one of those things where like, I don't think it's an, I don't think it's really like a either or or both thing. I think it's a, you know, you, the only real reason to play a mono blue deck in, in CDH is because of the things that you could do with artifacts. Yeah, I think that was all well said. Um, but I guess before we move into the history, is there anything else you'd like to say? All right. Okay. So, um, so let's move into the history of Mono Blue, and I think um, it's great to encapsulate the history before we go into specifically Urza because there has been a lot of development um, over the past, uh, I guess I don't know, six plus years at least, as far as when I've been playing, that um, is important to bring up. So, what are like? The other model blue commanders okay so I'm, I'm sorry did someone say that there were other mono blue commanders <laughs> i i there don't believe you to be, and i think there i was, don't believe you there was definitely more of a discussion in that uh before the printing of you know urza specifically but <laughs> so i gotta be honest so um as i'm fairly new to edh and cdh i haven't played a lot of other commanders and the only one um that was that really had an impact on me and i really liked playing was memnarch who is definitely not cdh viable even though people try to make him that um <laughs> and the reason i played him is because he synergizes with artifacts and that's what i like and then uh, other than that i can't um can't tell really i've, I've played against uh teferi i've played against narumeha i've played against um jace but i don't think that any of these was as good or as would you say it's consistent as Urza is? There's a number of potential CEDH blue decks. Um, <laughs> they're not as good, so I think it's fair to say that if potential, you are potential and strong air taking, quotes. Yeah, if you want the best option, I don't think it's as much of an interesting discussion. But I, I would, I would not look down on any deck which ran uh, quite a number of different commanders. I, I've seen viable options of, of course, Urza. Both versions of Teferi, Nerhumeha, uh, both versions of God Kefnit, uh, Eternal, I mean, hell, Thada, Del, Jace, there's an Arkham List rip, um, even Thibble, Fib, and Emery. And I, I would categorize these into perhaps three different groups. So there's those that have exceptional artifact based synergies. Naturally, something like Arkham, Urza, and Teferi would fall into this category. Um, so they're encouraging you to make artifact-based synergies baked into the deck, and then there's those which have the commander act as part of a very compact combo. So something like Narumeha would, would fall under that category, and to have a bit of overlap with the other section, to ferry as well. And the last are those which offer card advantage in the command zone. And it's this last group which I think are the least viable, because they don't differentiate themselves well from Commanders which would have a larger and wider color identity, while the card advantage of Jace Friends Prodigy or Azami is nothing to sniff at. If you're going to be doing that, why not just you know play play Timnathrasios and draw more cards, right? So I, I think that if we're going to talk about blue and what would justify you sort of tying one of your hands behind your back to play a monocolored strategy, 
I think that you need to, to pick what it does best, which is, again, artifact synergies and having a commander which can be included as part of your win condition. Yeah, and even reg in regards to like the mono blue commanders that do generate advantage, to be completely honest about it, even if uh, Thrasios or Timna were mono blue, they'd be doing a better job than than a lot of these commanders at card advantage. You're telling me that Fibble Fips draw one card isn't sufficient card advantage for a two draw? <laughs> I. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're quite at the density of like conditions in Model Blue to really say that, but... <laughs> I mean, even... I, I don't know. So we do have a I, list of descending uh, strength, and I, I think it's important that we go over, uh, maybe talk specifically about the the list, and also that, you know, the controversy in regards to which commanders are in which places. So, of course, at the top, it starts with Urza. I don't think, I, I don't think anyone's really questioning that. Um, uh, and we will go into why that is uh, later for sure, but I think let's leave that discussion. So um, who wants to read off the next one? Okay, so the next one is Nauru Meha. Um, and I have to say that I do not agree with that. Because uh, yeah. I think uh, she's... How would you say it in English? Uh, you know when the combo is coming almost every time? It's telegraphed. Yeah, it's very yeah. telegraphed and you can interact with it. And then it's also very expensive to combo off, so people are going to be ready for it. And every time I've seen her in pots, she pretty much got smoked. Like, yeah, that's I, my I, experience like with earlier, seeing other people play. In when, when, when Keegan was talking earlier about uh, having a compact combo in the command zone, and I was looking at this list and, and Narumeha is second, I was like, compact? What? You have to find <laughs> these instants that, like, closely flicker, and you have to have an outlet, or it doesn't really, like, do anything. And, like, first of all, you already, you know, if you're playing mono blue, you're already kind of low on card quality in many circumstances, so having to play shit like Ghostly Flicker and Illusionist Stratagem is not amazing. Even if it does combo with your commander, you then also need an outlet, and finding and putting together all of those things with the card selection that we have is not especially likely, and that doesn't even get into... I, I mean, look, the number of games that I've played in the last six months where I could have reasonably sat around and interacted and held up seven mana waiting to win is like i can probably count them on one hand i just don't think this is a very good deck if i'm being super direct there, there are some real drawbacks to nero meha especially given that unlike uh, a similar deck into fairy being her being involved in the combo um she has little utility outside of it it's unlikely that you'll pay four mana right. for a fork effect um to, to yeah, speak exactly to some right. of the strengths of that deck would be naturally the win condition is instant speed which is highly relevant although as you point out it it's often foreseeable especially because your tutors to find your ghostly flicker will be have to they'll be telegraphed right you'll be able to see for it and then holding up the seven mana is is necessary uh, in terms of in terms of actually on board what you have to be head telegraph on board it's much less which is one of her advantages um really you just need lands to cast it uh technically you could you could win from nothing but that generate infinite mana and then use your blue sun zenith to knock everybody out i don't think it's exactly fair to call it a two card win win condition because although Nerumeha and your commander you always have access to ghostly flicker you'd have to tutor for you, you still need to have an outlet and this is an advantage that is 
uh, unique to Urza and Teferi, then being able to both generate infinite mana as well as draw slash cast your whole deck is is pretty big. Um, included at number two, I think, is perhaps controversial. Can, can we... I know Teferi has gotten a lot more testing, um, but she is perhaps the... She stands out at, as unique in that Artifact 8 is something which she dances around very nicely. While Urza is okay at Artifact 8, it still has to, against Artifact 8, it still has to play a lot of it, and uh, it can execute some of its combos even with that out. Um, Narumeha really is only hated on by, of course, Rule of Law effects as well as um, counter spells, but 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 what isn't. Um, and, and then lastly, if someone were to mm, heinously just pressure your life total and draw cards and never let you do nothing and cast seven mana, she's pretty weak to that too. So her, her backup plan is, is pretty bad. But she, she happens to be a little more resilient I, as well as being able to operate at instant speed is, is useful. I think it's useful to yeah. move to the next one because I, I think that there's a there's a piece here that is about why Urza is relevant and good that includes resource denial and uh, playing a general, like a stacks strategy or sub theme, which is very material and evaluating, you know, the relevance of the deck um, that I want to, I want to kind of get to, because I think it, I think it is what I, what I would say is the primary argument for why you should not play something like Narumaya mm-hmm. if you're playing mono blue. Um, so the next, the next list, the next uh, general on this list is uh, Chainvale Teferi or Teferi the Planeswalker, um, and I and I think you know I, I kind of agree with this one being either you know, second or third. I I don't know what else you'd put second, but the reason is because mono blue and the the, the format itself is you know legitimately a turn three format. Trying to build a turn three mono blue EDH deck is aspirational at best Uh, (laughs) let's say that right like it's aspirational and when you're when you're you know the entire meta revolves around these ultra fast dockside strategies which by the way take advantage of the fact that we have to rely on artifacts to do literally fucking anything um you you kind of realize very quickly that going fast is never going to be the thing which is you know mo number one so the 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 long and short of that becomes that these mana denial and disruptive strategies get much better because there is no real version of reality in which you can go faster than the rest of the format. So Chainvale Teferi and Urza, in in my opinion, sort of shake out and, and bubble up to the top as the two kind of premier ways of approaching that specific problem in that they greatly facilitate your ability to break parity on, on stacks, effects, and... Um, play a disruptive strategy in ways that the, many of the other generals just don't provide. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I, I might, I might rate uh, Chain Veil to Fairy slightly lower than some of the other cards on this list, even though I think it's necessary to pay homage to what was for a long time the premier mono blue strategy and its drop off in power level i think is highly related to the number of creatures that are around whereas it might have been possible before to use teferi as card advantage and mana ramp now there is little to no chance that you'll be able to resolve a teferi and live have it live to see another turn cycle and 
if it's to die and go from 6 to 8 mana to recast, it really limits your ability to combo. I know, Matt, that you had played this deck for a long time, and in our discussions, I believe characterizing it as a, a mid-range deck was not, <laughs> yeah. was not incorrect, given how it needed to use its commander for advantage sometimes and basically do nothing, pursue its game plan, trade resources, and then go for it. But I believe in uh, 2016, everything changed. You can't, you can't do that anymore. There's so many creatures around for, uh, for Timnas, and it's impossible to keep up for the late game card advantage. What, uh, what other folks have mentioned here is entirely right. You need to be able to draw the game a little bit longer because Mono Blue can't win as quickly. However, you can't draw it into a symmetric late game. You can't just have everyone allowed to pursue their game plan and know that your Mono Blue strategy will outcard advantage people, as despite popular opinion, especially amongst more casual players, that Mono Blue is the, the epitome of control. Decks nowadays are entirely unable to pursue that, and those that pursue it well are the ones that have access to more sources of card advantage than Mono Blue could ever hope to. I, I yeah, also... I, I want to talk specifically about the creature problem as well. Like, the to, to put it like succinctly, like Deferi's biggest biggest weakness is that it doesn't have three toughness, and I think the largest like one of the great improvements you get from Urza uh, from Teferi is that you get two creatures with more than three toughness. So. Uh, like you know, in 2016 when we got partners, uh, absolutely everything changed with the, with uh, with Timna. Uh, I think I think also which, which there's kind of puts God Eternal Kefnet in my mind maybe above Teferi in the sense because hmm. can that creature block? I, <laughs> I, I I mean I agree with that also just because of the Chrom problem. Like you like what the what the hell if you're playing a Planeswalker as a commander like how do you deal with Chrom? Right? Like, you don't. You, you, the, the, you can't cast Teferi until you have the rest of your combo in your which hand. Which is, oh god, really? that's so bad. Which is a huge stipulation. Yeah, that's so bad. Yeah, the only card in the deck that actually gives you the opportunity to play on multiple turns is, like, War of Invention, and from, like, the artifact into in play tutor sense, like, it's probably one of the, the weaker ones. Well, I think we can see that given how closely War of Invention compares to something like Court of Calling and how rarely we see something like Court of Calling being limited to monocolor decks as well. As mono blue players, we are thankful for any scraps of tutors that we do get. So it, it, it happens I... to be premier amongst us, but in the context of quality tutors, uh, not so much. Wait, it, maybe we should put this in the section about single card discussion because I actually don't agree with the, the War of Invention thing and it's a it's kind of a broader point for me. Like, giving away information is bad in this deck and word of invention lets you keep information hidden and do things like oopsie a stacks effect that obviates whatever someone was trying to do right like word of invention into pithing needle shuts down a lot of shit word of invention into torpor orb like oopsie barfs on dockside so like i i really like that aspect of of playing mono blue um but i think it it seems like more like it belongs in the single card discussion section yeah. Sure. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I think of we have a we have a very complete list of the remaining. I just want to mention um, uh, some commanders that have I think historically been considered the best at one point, and uh, due to various circumstances, and I would say that those would be Arkham and um, and like the kind of the high power sense Azami. Um, but uh, if you guys have points on the other ones, then let's absolutely bring them bring them up. 
No, I totally agree. Arkham. So I, at this point, I wouldn't play any other mono blue deck, honestly. Like Azami's cool because she's got the um, tribal thing going on, which is interesting, but it's not a thing a lot of people uh, consider in CDH. And then Arkham, of, of course, it's like uh, Sinovi already said, he's dead since Penjin Ban. <laughs> yeah. I, God, God, Rip, I just one. need to say this, but like Arkham, God, I really loved Arkham because I, I just, in general, like I play a lot of disruptive and stacks decks in CDH, and I really miss playing a deck that could both be stacks and just force everyone to have it or you would win. This card is really a lot like Hermadruid in that way. You know, like, yeah. you run out Arkham, and everyone knows if no one finds an answer, you will win if you're on top of Arkham, right? Yep. Like, I loved that aspect of that deck, and I was so sad, because without Penjin, it really is just not the same thing. Ar honest, and Arkham was, I think, considered, uh, like, one of the best decks even before Penjin, due to, like, yeah. the... I mean, I, I don't know exactly yet, but, like, the Dark Steel Citadel-type combo where you can clear the board uh and it's still in that sense it, disc and yeah uh, forge yeah and still in that sense like um yeah sorry not citadel <laughs> it's still in that sense like it is an untap and win deck uh so you can yep. definitely steal games in that sense I, all right i have some i uh, i mean it, it goes without saying that paradox engine hurt is a lot of decks uh the banning of that but mono blue got it kind of bad Especially because two of its decks in Arkham Dagson and Emery are viable with it and less so without it. My issue with Arkham mostly relates to how how slot intensive the combo has to be. Um, if someone counters your Arkham a couple times, and I'm looking at a hand that inc includes uh, Mem Knight and Sentinel Flute, I'm not <laughs> super happy. Um, and what do you mean? Come on, man! Sentinel Flute is amazing. Sentinel flute, dude. You're gonna oh, be you're I gonna be happy you have all those zero cost creatures when you guild a drink someone's Timna. Just saying. So, so <laughs> it, it requires you to play what I think could uh, generously be called air and callously called garbage. Um, <laughs> so I don't know that because it already le it leans into what Mono Blue already has a problem with, which is highly commander centric strategies. You really need the commander to be in play to do anything. And it, 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 you can do literal nothing without it. I, I think it's also fair to make specific reference to um, Jace and the aforementioned and mocked Fibblethip, because both of those, um, they have entrance on the deckless database. There are people who play them. I consider them CDH decks, but they have pretty inherent problems. The problem with Jace being that the high tide combo that's trying to pursue is not actively great, and it itself as a... Uh, one-time Snapcaster Mage and sometimes Merfolk Looter is not enough card advantage to warn its slot, really. And then with Fibblethip being literally two-mana draw one outside of your Polymorph combo, and at the time that you're pursuing a Polymorph combo, why choose that as your commander? Um, and then, I don't know. I, I, I've given a try to, um, I think, all of these decks at one point. Um, definitely played the most CVT and Azami, but the they just don't stack up. They don't stack up because Urza has facets. Also, he is better than them because he circumvents some of the artifact reliance, which I mentioned was an advantage for Narumeha, but he just gets to do that kind of for free, which is huge. 
Yeah, the number of times I've seen people try to, like, windmill slam Null Rod like it's going to end your game, and then just, like, you play around it because Urza's not an artifact yeah. is kind of amazing. It's... Th- this, is, this is something which is going to likely be an expanded conversation later, but to make specific mention to it now, I think that as hard as Urza is to play, it is much more difficult to play against, but that doesn't mean that when you play against it, you're not going to have it lose, but there is a an overestimation often on what you might be capable of. I had the privilege recently to play with um, some of the turn, turn, Team Turn 3 people, and Reed looked at my board and said, well, I guess he might just win. And I looked at my board, and I had two lands and Urza in play, and thought to myself, well, I hope so, but I don't know how we're getting there. <laughs> That is that is so, so true. You, oh my god, the threat assessment. If you want, if you want to be feared, Urza is a is a good deck to play, but <laughs> it, it requires a little bit of uh, Cedh specific knowledge to play around in such a way as to not overvalue its strength, and as a consequence, sort of give free wins to other decks. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Um, also, just as a tiny aside, because some people play this type of thing, um, there are a number of mono blue decks which are very good in limited circumstances, that being when you can't get your other two friends to show up. Um, so <laughs> if, if you play something like Baral, Venser, Vendillion, Click, or Talrand, they can all have legs and play a meaningful game in 1v1, but it, it, with four players, it drops off dramatically. So... That yeah, be something the, the real strength not. of yeah, exactly. Vandillion Click. Honestly, I played a lot of Vandillion Click to be truthful um, in the past, especially like I was talking about earlier. You know, playing games of uh, CEDH before it was a format and making everyone salty. I used to play Vandillion Click and Tunnel Vision, and that really upset people. Like the fact that your general plus Tunnel Vision was a combo was like very upsetting for a lot of people. Like when the format was kind of you know more fledgling. Um, but the the Venser or I'm I'm sorry, Vendelian Click heads up is also just so powerful because it gives you this ability to just say no to from the command zone at any time something that your opponent is doing, and when there's only one of them, that is amazing. Um, mm. When there are three, uh, it's it not. It becomes great. a bit tougher, yeah. Um, well, I think that's a. Uh, a great way to wrap up the history for sure of mono blue um I, we have some other honorable mentions that may not have uh come up so i'll just list through those and then uh let's move on so we have <laughs> empress galena uh of course uh we have kefnet the mindful um creature to fairy uh and <laughs> that's a deep dwelling all of which okay arcanists for sure all of which have you know can certainly steal games in like high power context and definitely represent mono blue well but maybe don't quite make the cut in uh cdh so yeah. Shout out to uh, shout out to Creature to Fairy also playing one of my other favorite cards, which is Knowledge Pool. Yeah, yeah Creature to Fairy is rude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's move on to the history of Urza. Um, so to start things off, why don't we just talk about how um, what kind of adapt- adaptations we've taken from Teferi uh, as kind of being the previous uh, mono blue staple. Well, can we can we just start with the blocks Timna meme? Because this comes up, I feel like, with everything about the format. Like people see something with a three bot and they're like, Oh my god, blocks Timna! Yes! Stop it! Jam it! 
Um, and I'm <laughs> like, as much as I hate that meme, uh, it is kind of true here. Like the fact that your general has a four butt and blocks most of the relevant things that would be trying to attack you is pretty awesome. Um, the construct also does this in most circumstances. And like, I think blocking is just actually relevant these days. And that's great because we have a four butt. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, and also, Someone like wanna... over the course of a game, Urza is certainly prone to removal and casting Urza again to get another construct, and even playing into that uh, <laughs> can really clog the board up, and uh, which is great for the for the late game. So uh, one thing too that uh, Urza has over Teferi is its resilience to artifact hate. Um, does anyone want to go into that? Okay, so uh, the interesting thing is like a lot of artifact hate is based on uh, denying artifact activations. So we have uh, Null Rod and Collector Oof. And the best thing about Urza is that he can tap artifacts to produce mana himself. So we don't use the activated ability of the artifact, which makes the deck kind of resistant to uh, that kind of artifact hate. And we can also... Yeah, so... The main issue, at least in UPS, is that we kind of need to get rid of that artifact hate the turn we want to combo off. Because our best combos are, well, the obvious combos are uh, based on activated abilities of artifacts being uh, Ice Crown Scepter and Grim Monolith. And just yeah. because we haven't talked about this yet, there's you know there's kind of two builds of this list, one of them being the, the what Eisenhurst refers to as UPS, um, and the other being what we refer to as Bouncy Boy uh, or Tidespout Tyrant. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that um, this this thing where you just get to sidestep a lot of artifact-specific hate until you're ready to actually transact the win is very, very good. Um, being reliant or behest to having to play around that or through it before you can even go off is not so good. And I think that's the place that... Uh, Teferi really stumbles, someone jams an Elrod and you can't remove it, and then you're just kind of out of the game because you don't do anything else. It's, yeah, Blue it does not have direct artifact dis destruction. Like, if you really want to deal with, or in creatures for that matter, if you really want to deal with something, you need to first bounce it and then counter it. So being in a situation where you have to one for two, but also be in a multiplayer game really puts you back uh, tremendously. So, yeah. I, I can't stress I think enough the importance of the buddy Urza comes along with, that construct is extremely useful, both in allowing you to pursue a entirely new combo. Naturally, you need another body to polymorph if you want to do that. Um, but even more importantly, it allows you to do something under stacks if it's not going perfectly. Naturally, if you've static orbed everybody out of the game and they can't do anything, that's fine. But if throughout that your Urza gets killed or what have you, you know, it's a shame, but you still have a 7-7 seven, seven that you can beat people up with. And it provides a real impetus to try and force people to go for a win before they're ready to do so. If you have, as you do now, uh, many decks which use their life total aggressively as a resource, either with uh, Here into the Abyss, Ad Nauseam, what have you, even a Sylvan Library, and you just take five points of their life away every turn, they're obliged to try and win sooner before they're prepared. And as such, it'll give you an opportunity to stop them before they're able to get all of their pieces in place, as well as it'll give you an opportunity because as they're trying to win more quickly, they'll have to tap down lower. So the the construct being just a beefy boy is is huge 
Um, also, it means that Urza recouped his mana. So that four CMC you see in the top of corner is actually a lie. Urza is uh, three mana because he he recoups immediately, as well as then turning a bunch of other uh, lower value cards suddenly into into Moxin. So he can actually ritual you. If you had an Urza out in the early game, it got removed, and you happen to dump him later, you'll often see that you have more mana after he's resolved than before, which is bizarre. Yeah, the fact that Urza is functionally ramp, and that this deck, you know, one of the other bullets we have here is utility outside of combo, and uh, we discussed earlier that Mono Blue really struggles to ramp, and that ramp is good. Shocker. Um, yeah. Urza ramps, right? And like, Having ramp and an infinite outlet in the command zone is amazing. Like, there's just no way that any of the other mono blue commanders like can step up to that. And and I mean that just because ramping is that good. I mean, you know, look at all of the all of the strategies in this format. Like, all of them are trying to cast five plus mana spells and protection and things. And like, ramp is the best thing to do. Like, it, it just is. Like, there's nothing winning without like this ridiculous dockside making tons of mana which lets you like sidestep hate and do all these other things so, like ramp is good urza lets you ramp and he's an outlet it's just clearly a step forward from where teferi is in my opinion the, yeah the i think there's you to shore up the weakness that the color combination that is to say that the the single color has so you, yeah. you shore up your biggest weakness and then also play into your strengths as well as having uh it, it, it opens up combos which other mono blue decks which don't there's also kind of a point here on card quality where you can be more proactive mm. in playing, um, you know, like your stacks pieces while also realizing your plan to ramp because of, uh, of course, the Urza. Um, cool. So uh, we've seen, I think there was, there's always a rush in the CDH community to get kind of the first list out. And I, and I love that about the community. Absolutely. So in the early days, um, we're talking about, um, I mean, you guys know better than me, but there was like the UPS list, which is Sick, Shaper, Siggy, Lurker, to be correct. Um, That's right. And um, of course, you know, since then it's evolved into uh, the Discord and that. Do you guys want to maybe talk about that? So I wasn't around when the first list was um, written. Uh, I, joined C I joined EDA EDH a little bit later than that. But it was the first list I was um, I've seen on um, the CDH database and as on tapped out as well. So naturally, I went from there and made my own list out of it, which is still pretty similar to the original list. So, uh, or at least to the list that's uh, that's um, that you can see on the tapped out link right now. Um, yeah, and that's maybe that's also the reason why I'm personally personally still not uh, on the polymorph train. Um, yeah, so, well, in my opinion, it's an overall it's a really strong list, but um, maybe that's because it plays a lot of staples, and Urza is such a incredibly good commander to have. I had a, a wonderful time with, as as you put it, Matt, the, the Mad Dash when it was first spoiled. Um, during spoiler season, Urza was printed. Naturally, a number of my friends who knew I played messaged me to, sh to show me it. And I left from work to go pick up the cards for it. And by the time I got home, there was already a deck list for it. So that was pretty amazing. At, at that time, the list was much closer to what Chain Veil Teferi was, relying on 
some of the best mono blue cards. Um, the adaptations I made from that, so so credit for for all of those deck makers for for this inspiration. But the direction I took it at was to play much more into synergies with Urza. By my view, Mock Sapphire is a pretty good card. So I just put in as many versions of zero <laughs> CMC artifacts as I could and probably went a little overboard. I then had the great fortune to actually play with uh, Sick Reed um, as well as Shaper and Lurker at Grand Prix Montreal. And in fact, got to, got to play some mirror matches then. And at the time, I was on some very different build than I am now. Of course, it was creature-based as well as the deck was more reliant on... Uh, Future Sight combos with uh, Top and whatnot, where at the time I played oh, God. Mystic Forge instead, which <laughs> well, didn't did work out that's, how I wanted it that's to. That's a take. But in playing with them in the discussions, um, I mentioned how how I thought it was wise to basically just not go all in on Urza, because that that's a little too much, but play as much into just him being good as possible with specific emphasis on putting Mock Sapphire that can be cantripped away when you don't have him. And so that's why well, my, my list will play a higher density of those as well as, as uh, synergistic cards with those like Paradoxical Outcome. But it, it, it's adapted a lot. And then, of course, Polymorph happened and, and lots of things changed. I um Yeah, what's that about? What's this creatureless deck list that we're hinting at? Something, 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 bouncy boy. Um, so the the creatureless list is a uh, is what we call the polymorph, the poly tyrant build of Urza. And essentially, the way it works is you don't run any creature other than type spell tyrant, and you run uh, the polymorph effects, which reveal cards from the top of your library until they reveal a creature, and then you put that creature into play. Um, so it plays both Proteus staff and polymorph, and when resolving either one of uh, those abilities, you get Tide Spout Tyrant, and then you trivially kind of go infinite with uh, with mana positive rocks. So that could be you know zero cost mana or zero cost artifacts that you can uh, play, and then trigger Tide Spout Tyrant, and then bounce another zero cost artifact to your hand uh, after tapping it for mana with Urza, um, producing infinite mana, of course, and then you can play your entire deck with uh, with Urza's ability. Um, the reason. That this list, in my humble opinion, is uh, the only way to play this deck. Cough, cough. Uh, is... Humble opinion. <laughs> <laughs> my my humble opinion is that if you don't play this, you are wrong. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but the 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 real advantage to this is that you you kind of turn polymorph into a uh, air quotes again one card win condition in that the only things required to go off are uh, your construct and incidentals, like cards that you would incidentally have anyway. And I always say this about this combo, but like, if you don't have, if you can't meet the requirements of being able to go off infinitely with Tidespot Tyrant, you're probably losing the game anyway. Um, like, if you're not in a position to have mana positive rocks or zero cross artifacts to go off after you have a Tidespot Tyrant in play, it's kind of like... You were already in a real bad spot. They're also um, those rocks are used for its other combos. So if you're developing yep. things like yep. Monolith for use as the power artifact combo, or developing artifacts for Isochron Scepter lines, it doesn't telegraph that you might be going for a Polymorph line because also it 
it feeds into the other ones. The requirements are are no different from the other lines, which which obfuscates what your plan might be. It's disguised well, is what I'll say. Uh, so, yeah, which is so, always which is definitely kind of a. That's. It's true. It turns. It turns your. It, it also happens. I, I, I mean, people say one card win condition about everything. At this point, I think Lenore Elves is a is a one card win condition. But uh, Polymorph is as yeah, dude, because you can deal for as you can get training grounds um, <laughs> because you really do just need the Polymorph and then a bunch of random stuff, and it can be anything. They also also don't have to be all mana positive rocks, which is nice. Uh, a mana vault and a yeah. sapphire medallion. One being minus right. one, the other being plus two, means that you can right. you can combo with a lot of stuff. It also allows you to play through hate, which would normally be crippling to a uh, mono blue deck. Naturally, it doesn't require the use of any artifact activated abilities because you're tapping them to Urza if you have zero drops. As well as you can actually just use some of the bounce triggers of the tyrant to bounce whatever hate piece might be stopping you. Yeah, <laughs> the, the real thing. The, the that, real thing that is the You know, I, I will. I do want to say that on that last point about um, stopping hay pieces or working around hay pieces, it is really hard to understate how powerful that is. The fact that you know, once you produce infinite mana or with one spell, your win condition also answers every relevant kind of hate in the format is kind of like very hard for me to step away from i mean it just I, the number of games that i've won where i can use a, a bounce trigger because it's on cast by the way you know it's right so like any spell you cast triggers this so like torpor orb doesn't stop it um you know like null rod doesn't stop it curse totem doesn't stop it there's like no there's no real way to combat this with a with a with permanence that uh that doesn't you know, just get obviated by the fact that you can bounce it. There's there's two important points I just want to touch on before I, I've said my piece for the differences. And the first is that uh, these decks aren't actually that different. Um, it's a low opportunity yeah. cost to run creature list because uh, UPS only has four creatures in the first place. So it's not like you're you're losing a ton of card quality. You are losing some very strong effects, especially things like Gilded Drake and Spellseeker. But you gaining the other win condition is helpful. Um, and then the last one is there's actually a, a, a variety of polymorph effects. And Cynivia uh, and I only do play two in Polymorph and Proteus Staff. But if you chose to take this much yeah. more in a polymorph line, uh, you have the options of Reweave, which is a six mana instant and randomly arcane. Uh, you can mass polymorph, which is, again, a, uh, a sorcery in six mana. Uh, Synthetic Destiny is a six man an instant, and then you have the two strangest ones, which are creature polymorph effects in Jalira, which is basically just Proteus staff but on a creature, so it's it's worse. Right. And the the very strange Riptide shapeshifter. Um, I could see running maybe Reweave, um, and I have seen people do Mass Polymorph and Synthetic Destiny, although in those cases because it kills yeah, both I... of your creatures. They often are not getting Tidespout Tyrant and instead get Thassa's Oracle and right, Leveler, they're getting... which is... Oh, it's, it's a God. I just... Why? <laughs> uh, I hope I hope we when we get to the single card discussion, I can't wait to shit on Thassa's Oracle being played in this deck. <laughs> I look forward nice. to that. Just saying. Please do that. One point I want to 
one point I want to bring up uh, just before we move on specifically with uh, Tide Spout is uh, the one kind of hate that it doesn't stop are uh, permanents that limit the amount of spells you can cast in a turn. Uh, of course, if you cast your Polymorph, you're not going to be able to cast a spell to bounce that. So that <laughs> is certainly you, you a limitation. Uh, staff for those conditions. So yeah, if you do have Proteus Staff, then but, you are doing, to be fair, doing then it you're well. casting Proteus Staff and passing turn. I mean, th this feeds then you're also not responding to removal, right? So good, but it's, uh, yeah. Those rule of law type effects are also very uh, bad for the other two combos we play. Yeah. So you can't go off with uh, Ice Chrome Scepter, and you're also very... It's very hard to go off with uh, Grim Monolith Power Artifact, because the second you cast Power Artifact, you've already ca cast that one spell, and then you can't go for a Bounce Effect. Which hurts, so you will have to wait a turn and then hope nobody destroys your combo, which will. Yeah. Well, the nice thing, see, the nice thing about that though is that with power artifact, and this is I, this is why I still like running power artifact. Um, in a rule of law situation, you can pass the turn and then activate Urza, you know, ad nauseum. Uh, <laughs> I don't sort of choice like that plan. Uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> I'm not, I didn't say it was a good plan. I just said, like, you know, if you have to play into a rule of law, you can get away with this because you don't have to cast every one that you uh, flip. You can just keep flipping Something and then pick what you want to cast. I suppose we didn't discuss because I, I think most of the listeners of this podcast are at least familiar with CDH in the deck is that Urza's activated ability is, is quite poor. It does not get around um, timing restrictions. So you have to cast the spells right. as they normally would be cast. Uh, it does allow you to play a land, which is nice. And the other big thing is if you can't cast that spell or you choose not to, it just remains exiled. So I, I have some concerns about passing the turn, exiling a large portion of my library. Um, at, as yet, I don't believe that either of our Verda have the ability to win at instant speed. Yeah, I agree with that. I, th I don't think that... Uh, like going on that topic of Urza's activated ability, I don't think you should use it anytime if you're not going off. Like I use it sometimes if I have nothing, really yeah. nothing better to do. Um, yeah. And I have enough mana open to at least um, pretend that I have interaction. So that's the only time I use his uh, third ability. And it and it's really it really goes poorly most if of the time. If they had templated so. it like Thrasios's ability where the lands went into play and you just drew that would be much better but they didn't um <laughs> that would be pretty uh, nice everyone also has a story <laughs> when they've uh, activated Urza's ability when someone's win condition is on the stack and they just mised into like a force of will or something and that's all nice but it, it don't nice don't try and do that also if you're intending to activate Urza's ability uh, a common mistake that i see is for people to have played their land first which means that if they hit a land, which is a third of the deck, then they can't do anything with it, uh, as well as to wait to do it on people's end step, because then a large portion of your deck being only sorcery speed means that that's also wasted. So if, if you really have nothing, and you're not trying to gain value from a bluff, just spin it main phase, see what happens. But last resort, that's a last yeah, resort. Yeah, that's, that's also a common mistake too with the... Yeah, a lot of people yeah. try to play Urza's activated ability as if he was Thresios, which he's yes. definitely not. So if you're coming from other decks and trying to use his ability as you would maybe some specific 2CMC Simic 
partner card just it doesn't work at all like that and you have to rethink <laughs> how that works basically only activate it if you have no other option or you're winning the game yeah 1.2 in regards to like saving your land drop that if you are on the future site version yes. that is also very good advice uh definitely get your future site down before playing your land um and i guess our, the last point in this section is um how do you guys find urza is placed in the metagame um i guess uh this is history so i guess over time so of well, course uh, oh Cinevi, you go first please if you want uh yeah i think this is sort of a sore spot because the deck definitely suffered from the removal of paradox engine i think this is a, a big deal i mean i i was you know to be honest when, when this deck was first brewed, I was too stubborn to stop playing Arkham to start playing Urza. Um, and I was still, you know, kind of trying to play Arkham uh, as a tier one mono blue deck. And I think Penjin in both of those decks was kind of a centerpiece strategy. And I think it just added a dimension to the deck that made it like really tier zero. Um, and I think that without Penjin, you lose you lose the ability to like oopsie into a win. You have to be much more deliberate and and kind of constructed uh now and intentional now about assembling your win conditions than you did when when Penjin was in the deck because you could just oopsie onto a tutor for for you know into plates an ETB tutor like transmute artifact or something and find yourself able to win the game on the back of that and you can't do that anymore. Right, right. Yeah I think um I agree with that and I think that uh Urza has also suffered in the current meta a bit. So if everybody has probably listened to the last podcast you guys uploaded, um, which talks about his current <laughs> positioning in the CDH meta. meta. And um, although I don't think that the numbers are that relevant and also not that accurate, I've um, I've experienced it. Uh, well, I've experienced I've experienced the um, the how you say it. Um, well, the win rate has went down. My personal win rate has also went down. Not like not only the win rates we talk about on the Discord server, but also my personal win rates have went down a bit. Not as much as in the um, data, but yeah, you can feel it definitely. I've always enjoyed playing Urza. I I wouldn't agree that it was ever part of the tier zero club. I believe Modern Horizons came out in 2019. And by that time, partner decks had been highly optimized to the point that um, it, that's a tough comparison to make. Um, but it, 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 it was and will likely remain tier one for whatever that's worth um, for, for some time, just based on raw power level. Uh, losing Paradox Engine sucked. A uh, weird note is that I observed and experienced a higher win percentage when Flash was legal. Um, and it was hard for me to figure out why that was, but my theory is that because there's an existing boogeyman in the form, uh, in the format, which means that you have to hold up your interaction and have it be hyper-premium at all times, people were less likely to fire off removal or use counter spells on your powerful but not game-winning threats. Whereas now, if someone's passing the turn, they have a red man open, they're like, well, I might as well use this Pyroblast and set you back a couple turns, um, 
which 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 hurts. Um, to make specific uh, mention to the the metagame project, I think we've seen pretty low win percentages. I'm not sure how it's changed over time. I, I believe it's gone down. Um, some of that is hard to tease out why it might be. Um, I'm I'm happy enough to enjoy a slightly high. <laughs> I'm happy enough to enjoy a higher than the 15% win rate, which it it suggests. Um, <laughs> and I wonder how much of that is through changing pod conditions. But Urza does well in a in a mixed pod. If everyone's control, you're gonna have a miserable time. And if everyone is fast combo, it's not gonna work. But if you have a little bit of everything, you have a diverse metagame, it fits in quite nicely because you're not faster than the fastest decks. You're not grindier than the most controlling decks, but you're trickier than anybody. And you can just use that trickiness to, to eke out wins where people might not be able to expect them. I, I really feel like it's worth talk, talking also about this uh, dynamic that we see a lot, you know, that people come to the Discord with their, with their lists and... I, I know I said we would get to this in a single card selection, but I have a raging clue that the players that are playing Thassa's Oracle and things like Training Grounds in this deck are probably losing a lot of games. Um, but beyond beyond that, uh, I think that there are two things, very specifically two things that about the current metagame that make uh, Urza you know, in an awkward spot. The first is that you are the best deck at the table, bar none, every single game at feeding two cards, which are omnipresent and honestly just like backbreaking for this deck and that is dockside extortionist and a card that if you know me on the uh discord you know that i have very strong feelings about and that's carpet of flowers yeah, uh, yeah. these two cards sidestep everything that this deck can do to disrupt and and deny resources which is something it's exceptional at and the fact that they exist in basically every single tier tier one tier zero deck is it's backbreaking, honestly. Like the number of times that I have spent two or three turns to set up kind of a soft lock and expended a bunch of interaction to prevent people from winning, and someone just windmill slams a carpet of flowers and starts generating like four or five mana around my like orb effects and things or my back to basics is just like it is maddening. Oh my god, it's maddening. It's it's fair to say that the printing of Draneth Magistrate didn't do Commander Reliant decks any favors either. That's fair. That's totally fair. One hundred percent. Yeah, but <laughs> so I, I think that the Drenth Magistrate is is strong, but he hurts everybody a, a a bit. He hurts us more, maybe in most parts, but he's generally um, bad for everybody. Whereas Darkside Extortionist and Carpet of Flowers get incredibly better with us in the pot. Yeah, we we super yeah. we literally I mean, it, it goes go back out of to our the way to where, supercharge both of those cards, right? Like, and that feels really really bad. It goes back to the point too, where like if you do want to deal with a Dranith, it is a one for two, and that's not at all where you want to be, especially in you know a multiplayer game. Um, yeah. So I guess before we move on, any other notes on history? Cool. So uh, we got deck construction, um, and this is definitely going to be one of the meteor topics, and we've gone ahead and created categories that can kind of you know provide some succinctness to this so uh, to start things off um what are the generally the win conditions that you find in ursa decks okay so um the general the win conditions that are placed in 99 percent of ursa decks are uh isoref combo because we can generate uh mana enough mana to just go off so we don't have to actually um 
worry about the rock aspect um, that often. Then the second combo we have is Grim Monolith plus Power Artifact, which is also a pretty good combo. Also a combo I, uh, I, I like a little more than the Isoref combo. It is harder to tutor for because we can't get a Power Artifact um, that easily. Um, but I like the fact that we can get out a Grim Monolith, lay low, wait till we are able to tutor for or draw into a Power Artifact and then go off with Interaction in hand. Um, a lot of times I don't, well, most of times I don't see anybody targeting my Grim Monolith because everybody is either waiting for me to play uh, Isochrone Scepter or are focused on other more uh, stronger artifacts that are in play. And then lastly we have the um, Holy Tyrant combo, which I'm definitely not an expert on, so I will let that, uh, let Keegan and Cinevi talking yeah that. i mean we, we talked about this earlier right like the the bouncy boy combo just means you you polymorph your construct into tides about tyrant and then you proceed to do bouncy boy things and make lots of mana infinitely so i you know it's another way to make infinite mana and utilizers as an outlet is the tldr i think there's some uh combos which we'll see players come in with uh, regularly which which bear some some lip service and uh we're not gonna i think spend a lot of time on budget alternatives just due to the nature of this podcast, but there are options which include um, Future Sight, Top, and Ethereum Sculptor. Naturally, not playable in Polytyrant, except for there are alternatives to Sculptor, so you can play something like Cloud Key, and this allows you to draw your entire deck. Uh, this is this is somewhat limited because it's three cards, and Future Sight is untutorable. It's okay because each of them is pretty good on their own top is something that you'll want to play anyways uh future site is an all right piece of card advantage on its own so that's nice uh um, so i think we feel in. differently about future site i think this card is hot trash honestly uh, i yeah mm. I'm, I'm i'm not very big on it um i think i mentioned before that i i did play this combo at a time and i could see playing this in a version that did not include Polytyrant, I suppose, just as another combo, even though I'm not a big fan. Uh, Mystic Forge is easier to search, but it's so much worse on its own. Um, and the... I think this is a great budget option, but I also kind of think that Urza as a deck is not a great budget deck. No, necessarily. Crypt. Um, yeah. Um, there's also there's also Rings Basalt, which is a very popular option. In fact, most people who have not had exposure to the CDH community but want to build uh, Urza will include this. But the problem is, a Basalt Monolith is quite poor on its own. It's not great, um, and Rings is 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 very bad on its own. Um, and the mana required to assemble it is not ideal. Uh, there is some help in that Basalt is redundancy with Grim Monolith for power artifact lines which is something, but not a lot. Um, and the last sort of redundant piece I, I'd mention would be, I've seen people use the newly printed Lithoform engine in addition to Isochron Scepter because it has additional utility and also in UPS allows you to double up on Spellseeker triggers to look for things. So it does open up other options, but it's, uh, it's a lot of mana, which... I, I, I'm not experienced enough in playing it to lambast it entirely, 
Um, it's it's possible that there is some game there, but it it strikes me as a little bit clunky. Yeah, I'm um, I'm also not on it, and I'm not really considering it. Like it it looks interesting, but it it I also think that it's too expensive and not good enough on its own to include it. So I'll leave the testing to someone else. That's fair. Yeah, specifically should... in regards to redundancy, like the deck is chock full of artifact tutors. It doesn't run all the artifact tutors, so having kind of redundant, you know, uh, like placeholder tutor cards that kind of act as scepter, I think is already good enough. Uh, I'm sure there's a metagame where there's like rest in pieces and like exile effects where you really do kind of want the redundancy, but it's just we're not really there. Sure. Yeah. I, I, I feel like you could make a metagame to justify most. Yeah, things. yeah. 100%. I actually that God. Uh, Sensei's top sculptor combo. Uh, I played it for quite a while actually, um, but I've also come to the conclusion that Future Sight is just bad on its own. Like I really dislike the card. It gives away information, which is something we do not want to do. Yeah. And the fact that you can cast spell after spell after spell is very rare. So it really rarely happens. Most of the time you will get uh, blocked at some point and can't uh, continue. And then your opponents will know uh, what you will draw on your next turn. The only reason um, I played it for so long is because I really liked the Ethereum Sculptor and the combo. Yeah, so Ethereum Sculptor gets much better with the combo than without it. And I liked Ethereum Sculptor for the fact that if you played a, a Time Spiral, and have, have a Ethereum Sculptor in, in, in hand that makes for really explosive turns, and most of the time those won me the game. But yeah. There is some redundancy. You can, you can play a Psy instead of Ethereum Sculptor because it produces mana by its triggers, but I think that Psy was something that was included in earlier decklists but has since been pretty much dropped by everyone as being uh, too cute, so... While that is a viable combo, the size is too poor on its own, and it's important that your your combo be as compact as possible, and that its various elements have some utility outside of winning the game. And that's also true for Ethereum Sculptor. So it's very good with the combo, although the combo is not that good. But it's pretty bad outside of the combo because you don't actually have that many artifacts that would make it worth it. Yeah. So we play a lot of very cheap artifacts, and then we also have a lot of ramps, so we don't really need that um, cost reduction effect that hard, that much. Yeah. Uh, one point on Future Sight 2 is there kind of already is like a Future Sight deck beside Urza, and that's Elsha, and we've seen for sure that um, even though Elsha kind of fixes like the giving away information problem, it also has fallen out of favor because um, compared to the other win conditions, it doesn't really provide any improvements um, like, you know, Isorev or Polytyrant really do. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I, I really, I really also, this is, this is a, a, a point we're probably going to come back to when we talk about other cards, but one cannot simply give away information playing Mono Blue. Mm. That is just not a thing. Like, there, there are cards that even, you know, like we talk about cutting. And and we kind of have turned into memes on the Discord server, including Factor Fiction, uh, because specifically because they give away information, and that's really <laughs> painful in this deck because like you have to, you do have to lean in a little bit to playing Boogeyman, um, and I guess we're gonna get to piloting advice later, so we can talk about it there. But giving away information is incorrect, and that card just lets your opponents have all the information. 
in a particular event of uh, I don't know out of of error I put a te telepathy in my Teferi deck and I cut it immediately the first time I was able to play it because I'm like oh, God. or not to not telepathy there's like the anyway uh, I was just not I was not happy with the just, result just don't play telepathy because your games all become six hours because you'd think with perfect information everyone would play more quickly but it's just information overload yeah totally so the next category we have here is ramp uh and we did talk about how um urza like really fixes the ramp um aspect of mono blue so um let's talk about that no go ahead so um yeah, I think the the thing I like the most actually is that um, you can play all those very cheap artifacts that are like one man ma one manner, but replace the um, the cost the manner you spend on them. So you can pretty much uh, spam the board with a lot of cheap, very um, nice artifacts like Ether Spellbomb or uh, Witching Well, and then uh, have an ETB effect or something and then use them for mana later, which is a very interesting uh, idea, especially for uh, Aether Spellbomb. I like that card a lot because you can cast it, leave it there, not use it for a card draw, and then the second you need it, you can tap itself for mana, uh, sacrifice it, and bounce Urza to protect him or bounce a creature you need to get rid of to combo off, which is quite nice. Yeah. This is the part of the deck which is most unique from other blue decks and most other decks in general. There's very little to no two mana mana ramp here, with the single exception, I believe, of uh, Sapphire Medallion. And that's because you are granted the opportunity to play zero mana mana ramp, which is just obviously so much better. Uh, this is especially important if you're playing a polymorph version because these zero CMC artifacts are, are needed to pursue its combo. Um, but it, it does make you just so fast to be able to put those in. And it also means that you have a little bit of uh, flexibility as to what you could put in. So basically any CM any zero CMC artifact has the potential to be played in Urza and should be examined because at its upside, it's exceptional. But you do have a lot to choose from, and so you have the opportunity to be a little bit discerning. Uh, note, obviously, that because it's Urza's ability that's tapping it and not the artifact, this is gets around Nullrod, which is nice, but not something like uh, Linvala. Um, or Curse Totem, and, yeah. And, and finally, I have put a particular premium on 0 CMC artifacts and 1 CMC artifacts, which have utility outside of being Mana Rocks. So things like, of course, Aether Spellbomb, uh, Witching Well, Astrolabe, and any of the baubles in Mishra's Urza's Lodestone, which can cantrip away, all of those do something in their failure state, and then just happen to also be Mock Sapphire when they're when your deck's doing its thing. Oh, well, I that's interesting you say that because I noticed that you're not playing Tormod's Crypt, and that kind of that card kind of feels like a gimme to me, and in just in terms of. Exactly what you were just talking about. Zero CMC rocks that for Bouncy Boy feed the combo, but also yeah. have the upside of oopsie shutting down breach. Like that card is is super fire. I, I would have a very hard time cutting that card. And I, I think you I'm, play a couple zero CMC rocks that I don't. I know at the very least you play uh Tormund's Crypt and Welding Jar, which yeah. um are both very good, uh, protecting your stuff as well as exile and graveyards, I found to be powerful. Um I, I, I prioritized the artifacts which were card selection and card draw over interactability when they were ramped, but in a world now that we're seeing more and more 
graveyard-based decks like Breach, where Tormund's Crypt is is much better. I think that that's uh, that's valuable. Just to talk, maybe um, like to mention your meta. Like, do you actually play against a lot of graveyard-centric deck decks or? So for me, it's uh, my meta consists of play EDH competitive rooms. I do not play an uh, LGS simply because I do not have the time for to do it. Um, yeah. So I see breach a whole lot, like pretty much in every pot. Uh, same for Dockside, same for ad nauseum. So I, I don't think that I have played in any pot that didn't have any one of those. Most most of my play group is um, so of course I, I play on um, the CDH Nexus Open. And in those cases, I'll see a lot more Breach decks, Turbo Nas decks, but by far the majority of my games are played with uh, with people I know personally, and of those, I believe uh, there's one Curious Control, of course it doesn't play Curiosity, but you get the idea. Um, I think three medium green decks, which is Cancer to this deck, so that that's a particularly troublesome one. Um, Gitrog represents the only graveyard deck, but unfortunately Tormund's Crypt is insufficient to stop that combo, so not not super useful there. Um, as well as then a variety of three-color valuable decks, such as um, Kaikar, um, I don't think I've seen an Elsha, and the Wizard Commander with Eminence, whatever its name might be. Anala, yeah. Anala, yes. Uh, so that's also been popular. And then a number of uh, two-color decks, which are highly proactive on their own game plan, uh, such as Edric Varals and Tygum, are popular ones. Um, I I am um, I I want to I do I so I want to talk about my meta, but I also want to make two points about the ramp section of deck construction here. So sure, I'll, yeah. I'll talk about meta first, and then I'll come back to the ramp thing. Um, I, I also play on play DH. Um, my experience there honestly has been more that it's like there's a lot of stacks decks on that server um i play against a lot of stacks on that server uh, and i play a lot of stacks myself so that's kind of interesting uh but otherwise i have a a pretty good group of friends that um either i played with through college or who uh play in colorado here where i live with me uh, in person and that meta is much more graveyard centric uh to be fair uh i mean there's a tadiova player all of their combos revolve around the graveyard in in many cases or they just get tons of value out of like ramen up um lots of people on breach multiple cast decks um there's there's a couple people on hermit druid so uh there's a lot of stuff that revolves around the graveyard so that that is like not an, it's not an option to cut that for me yeah um, so Yeah, and we we don't. So the tie, that's a, that's a downside actually of playing Bouncy Boy is that we don't get to play Graph Digger's Cage because we have to uh, get Tides about Tyranid to play from our library. So yeah, yeah, that's a great point. I I, I know it. Yeah, I know this is kind of a, a departure from the notes. I just wanted. I think it's important that we um, maybe should have done this earlier. But like discussing our metagame certainly is how we inform our personal deck construction choices. So um, yeah, let's let's move back to ramp unless anyone else has a. I, I think suppose I would be that. remiss if I if I didn't account for the many games I played against Linden's Blood Pod deck. So that also <laughs> is, is is the representative other stacks deck. Raspberry Jam. <laughs> oh, I don't know what he calls it. I think it's just it, it, just it might just be Blood Pod, Blood Pod yeah. but it then has more stacks pieces than usual and no <laughs> Blood Moon or Birthing Pod. 
so maybe a bit of a departure <laughs> from the nomenclature. So sure. on the subject of ramp, I think that there are two things that I want to say here before we move on. Um, the first is that there are two kinds of ramp. Uh, ramp, which facilitates you casting Urza faster, and ramp, which helps after Urza has been cast. This is an important distinction because you have to have a good balance of both things. And cards which, like, like so that it makes certain cards awkward, right? So it makes mobile, um, Max, Mox Opal in some circumstances very awkward because it doesn't accelerate you towards Urza. And that can be problematic because you can end up in a circumstance where um, you actually just don't have the opportunity to cast Urza and you have a bunch of other rocks or cards that would that would do things if you could cast Urza, but you can't. Um, so you kind of have to pay attention to that. Um, and then the other thing that is worth noting is that uh, it is amazing how much better certain cards get when they tap for one mana as well. So the bar kind of like goes way down when everything taps for mana. I'm thinking of specifically things like... Um, top uh top is good but we're not really playing anything that it combos with it just is much better when itself it itself can tap for mana and be card selection and then also stuff like pithing needle where it's a kind of a narrow answer but because you're trying to drag the game out and there are lots of targets it otherwise the fact that it taps for one mana is just good enough so you get to kind of play some things like that uh in some of the slots as well yeah and then what i would like uh, to add is that i see a lot of people especially newer uh, people that are new to the deck that uh, add cards like arcane signet or thran dynamo or even gilded lotos those cards really do not have a spot in urza because we have yeah. we have so much better ramp we have ramp with utility we can make everything a, a, a mock safari so yeah also always have to keep that in mind when constructing this deck even in even in um, budget decks, you can just jam an in interactive zero or one mana artifact that has an ATB effect or something. That's that would definitely still be better than all those uh, high CMC rocks. One one important thing I think to mention is that our rocks being so cheap means that this deck has a play pattern of uh, vomiting its hand onto the table fairly quickly, and as Sinivi mentioned some of those rocks will not be able to tap to, for mana until Urza resolves. Naturally, once he does, you have a ton. But because of this high density of low CMC quote-unquote rocks, it makes any wheel effects absolutely phenomenal because Vomit Hand, Reload to 7, and Repeat is just an extremely effective uh, game plan because it's difficult for your opponents to develop their own game plan when their hand is getting wheeled away, as well as you can just churn through large portions of your library and then find yourself with a lot of mana, no cards, and then replenish your cards and just then have everything you need. Yeah, well, and then the yeah. last 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 thing I, I would like to say is that um, you should definitely not play Mox Ember. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> See that way too often. Yeah. I, I, I think it's somewhat important. So many people have suggested this that I feel like the specific reason is because they say, well, you have Urza, he's legendary, so it taps for blue. But then you need to think to yourself, well, because you have Urza, it taps for blue anyways. So its failure state is it does nothing, and its best case scenario is it's a worse Dark Steel uh, talisman or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally true. I, um, so I wanna, it's moving I on to disruption. Riff on, oh, pardon. Yeah, go I ahead. I want to riff on um, 
what uh, Keegan mentioned about vomiting your hand into play, because I think that yeah, maybe to skip some of these sections and go to like card advantage and bombs, uh, this aspect of the deck is why uh, playing card advantage engines, wheels, and bombs are so good, because you have this you know, this critical mass of, of ramp, and the deck does produce a lot of mana. Uh, when you get into a state where you've puked your hand into play and you have like one or two cards left and they're both interaction, that's not actually a very good position for this deck to be in. Like, you don't really want to be in that spot because it means that you have to like pray that you top deck well. And in my experience, this deck does not top deck particularly well. So you, you, you create these scenarios where uh, what you actually want is some kind of payoff. It's almost like playing Nas in some ways where, you know, you, you have a lot of hand, you have a density of hands that do a couple of things. Uh, one of them is vomit a whole bunch of rocks into play and then wheel or play like a time spiral kind of effect. Um, and it just puts additional emphasis on playing cards like that. And so, you know, those, those like five, six mana uh, draw cards, spells or things like consecrated Sphinx, if you're playing UPS, just get much more attractive because they let you do something that is like super abusive very early and and they serve as a, a payoff which is something that we're we're kind of short on uh in this deck we really have that issue of being really fast turn one turn two get urza out and then have nothing to do with the mana we have yeah and i do i did talk about kind of the wheel um point again like uh we are in a meta, a meta of underworld breach and like it, we, there are incidental wheels and that but that being said like not certainly something to rely on like dumping your hand out uh but it's absolutely something that uh you can expect out of your other decks so i guess what that means is like personally how i would play is to get your cards into play as soon as you can because you you know it might be inevitable that uh your opponent casts a wheel this might bleed into to play pattern suggestions but there are few situations when you'd want to hold on to your zero cmc spells like if you're looking at an ever-flowing chalice and you know you're never going to multi-kick it you're just going to play it for zero it's probably better to just do that earlier rather than later because again yeah. you get wheeled away who knows maybe a rule of law or trinisphere happens and then it's it's much worse and you'll be kicking yourself um i totally agree as simple as ristic study or mystic remora like anything like that means basically play your cards when you can the one exception to this is if you're aiming to do a polymorph win, it's necessary that you retain a cheap spell to, to start your loop by casting it. Yeah. And the thing with Everflowing Chalice also is that the only time it's worth it to multi-kick it if you pay four. At least. So uh, I don't think that I've multi-kicked it a lot of times. I just play it out, use it as a rock when Urza's out. I tend yeah, which to is particularly not going to be happening before you cast Urza. <laughs> the upside of Everflowing Chalice is that you can cast it before Urza with two mana, and it and it ramps. Like that's that's a thing that I I don't think it's right to not be on this card because unlike many of your other zero cost artifacts, it actually does accelerate you towards Urza in a pinch where you where you needed to, and that is really critical because it just increases the density of hands that you get the law you play the player general and not being able to do that and being stuck with a different zero-cost artifact that does not produce mana in your hand is really not a good position to be in. Yeah, you want to be developing as fast as your the other decks in the pod, and if you know, you're know you up against Thrasios, where it's a consistent turn to play, then you do want to like very much at least get Urza in the turn three. But of course, yeah. if you can go earlier, that's phenomenal. Um, 
So yeah, let's let's go on to the next section, which is disruption, and this is like a big part of how Urza works, I think, in my opinion. So um, yeah, let's talk about that. Uh, sure, yeah, well, the best things we have with Urza are the artifacts that we can shut off by tapping them, of course. That being uh, Winter Orb and Static Orb, they're incredibly strong with Urza. Um, and then we also have uh, Back to Basics, which works really fine with 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 this deck because uh, we play mostly islands and so we're not affected by it that much or at least as much as uh, three color or four color commanders are and especially cards uh, decks that have a um, tainted mana base so we use these cards to deny mana as good as possible and break parity on them and that's also why Cards like Carpet of Flowers really hurts us because it plays around that effect. Oh my god, I can't even think <laughs> about Carpet of Flowers without getting upset. It's just, it, it's what, what Eisenhurst is saying is exactly right, right? Like, we have the ability to tutor into play the orb effects, which turn off everyone else's ability to generate mana and do not do anything to us at all because we can tap them at will to cast spells or to turn them off and untap on our turns. And the fact that a one green mana enchantment simply sidesteps all of this because you're certainly not going to stop playing islands because you can't play anything else is maddening. There aren't as high of a density in stacks of stacks pieces within Urza as there might be in other dedicated stack decks, especially those which use creature-based stack decks. But the ones that we do have are phenomenal. So naturally, Static Orb, Winter Orb, and Trinisphere being the premier options, I want to quickly say how they can do different things. Winter Orb and Static Orb are not as exceptional in the early game because naturally there are fewer permanents to untap, but there's something that's really good to tutor for in the in the mid-game to, to stymie development. If you have the opportunity to develop an early Trinisphere, it is, is absolutely phenomenal. There, there's a whole dynamic of when you should tap it and when you should leave it tapped, um, which is, is too complicated for this short segment, but in general... Um, you with Urza out play very well with behind a Trinisphere because you can have a ton of mana and just develop your cards. Also, you tend to have fewer cards in hand, so you're not trying to, to storm off or something underneath it. So it pe people who I think should be searching for Trinisphere and casting it if they're trying to develop an early stacks piece, I, I think that it's it's often right to for that to be Trinisphere. And and two other cards which are often discussed, but um, I don't believe included in any of our decks are Tangle Wire and Storage Matrix. Storage Matrix is basically a worse winter orb slash static orb, and it's better to have two very good versions of that effect than th have the third one basically be you'd, you'd never tutor for it unless the other two got destroyed. So that's a, a niche enough scenario you don't want to do it. And then Tangle Wire is worse in the mid-game than Winter Orb and Static Orb, and then worse in the early game than Trinisphere. So it also suffers a bit from that. Um, what I'm trying to get across here is that while we don't... While Hate and Stack's mana attack are a central part of our strategy, uh, we don't play a ton of different versions of it. We just have the, the cream of the crop, which we'll actively search for regularly. Um, I think it's also fair to say that Tabernacle falls into that um, as one of the premier stacks pieces, but 
it, that, that's one that's harder to play around. It, you, you can't really search for it in the same way as you can artifacts. So if you happen to have a tabernacle in your hand, great. It's probably going to be very good, but, you know, just take that as it comes. Um, I think I'm also on a piece of disruption that neither uh, of the others are on, and that's Torpor Orb. Um, I play Torpor Orb because it's it just shits on Dockside. Uh, I think this is I think this really matters a lot more than um, I think it matters a lot more than people give it credit for. And the primary argument for not playing this card is that, but it shuts off my construct. Um, and I don't <laughs> think that's like super compelling when the other thing that it's doing is preventing everyone else at the table from winning the game. Like, fine. I don't get a construct, but you can't win is very good. Yeah. If, if I was uh, on Polymorph, of, or if I ever make this change to Polymorph, I will probably uh, include Torbor Orb because of Dockside and Festus Oracle. The other, the other thing is, like, you don't need the construct to win with Tidespot Tyrant because you can, you know, depending on what rocks you have in your availability of mana, if you have enough blue mana, you can just Polymorph Urza. Find Tidespot Tyrant, go infinite, and then play Urza again after bouncing the Torpor Orb if you need that's, to. And like, that's not that's not as easy because there aren't a ton of there aren't a ton of cards which allow you to produce blue mana for free. I think that's fair. Mox Opal because the natural yeah. other ones like Mox Diamond Chromox would require you to to pitch cards, which obviously doesn't work with Polytyrant. Um, I, you know what? It's interesting. It's something which I could see developing after an Urza. Uh, it stopping Oracle is huge. Yep. Stopping Dockside yep. is big. Um, yep. If there is a place to play it, it's definitely in a Polymorph version because the many creatures, uh, the the mages, for instance, and Gilded Drake being shut off by that is is, is too hard of a nombo. But uh, if you've had if you've had good experience with it, I could see it being see it being viable for sure. And it, it really hurts not only Dockside and Thus uh, Oracle. There are so many great ETB effects that it stops that I think it's really worth playing. And I'm... I mean, it stops all the Kiki base win conditions too. Like it, like this card, honestly, it shuts off like half of the format. So another another deck I play a lot of is Heliod, and these effects in that deck I I kind of hold in the same regard. Like stopping the most common win conditions in the entire format. At, on a, on any effect in a stack stack is exceptionally powerful. It is something you absolutely want to lean into. And then also, if you want to recast Urza, you only need two blue mana to do it. So once you go yep, infinite, yep. you probably have the two blue mana from your lands if you didn't use the your your last blue mana to cast Polymorph. I was going to say that to to Keegan as well. Is that you know most of the time. When you get to the point where Torpor has accomplished anything, you're going to have enough land that you probably will be able to recast Urza after going infinite. It's appealing. It's a it's an appealing option. Um, my reservations mostly relate to it being a stacks piece which hits a, a prevalent but not the entire part of the format. Um, naturally, a deck that's trying to win with with Oracle can get rid of an artifact. Um, yeah, and that's. That's not nothing, but it does mean that they have to tutor for one more card, so it makes their wins less explosive. But I, I don't feel safe behind a Torpor Orb. Um, I don't think it's it's a shutoff in the same way as as some other stacks pieces are. Um, 
so I, I don't put it in, in such a high regard as it just being like, oh, I can play this and then I can do whatever I want and be be fine behind it. Uh, my reasons for not playing it are less relying off the construct. Naturally, I would like a construct. It's a big part of the game plan. But you're probably trying to develop Urza before you develop your stacks pieces anyways. So that happens to be less relevant. Um, it's uh, it's two mana, narrow hate, which I, I take some issue with, but I, I can definitely see it being a powerful tool. I don't know. Man, calling it narrow feels feels like diminished to me. I mean, it feels reductive. Like, the fact that it Thoracle and Dockside and all of the Kiki combos. I mean, like, how many decks are winning games commonly with stuff outside of that? Don't forget that, Go that you wouldn't be able to interact with. <laughs> let me this is let me put it another way. I'm sure it's fantastic in Heliod, but I think that Heliod has money <laughs> more cards to cut than Urza does. <laughs> That's fair. Oh. That's fair. <laughs> Absolutely. This is rested. not the time to get on the soapbox about Heliod, but I would if given the opportunity. So <laughs> know that. The one card we haven't uh, spoken about uh, yet is um, what's it called again? Back to basics, of course. Yeah, back to basics. So um, I think it's a really strong, although we can't tutor for it. Because once you have it in, in play, it, it pretty much stops all the other decks that have the advantage of being not monocolored and being able to play the best um, cards from different colors. Um, I've seen a lot of players pretty much not, not bounce to it because because they're salty, but phase out the game mentally because they weren't <laughs> able to do anything anymore. Um, even like consultation cast players. Uh, and I hold back to basics in like, for me, it's also on the top of the of the stacks pieces, although we can't tutor for it because of how strong the effect is in the current meta, and how 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 little it affects us being mono blue. Back to basics is absolutely phenomenal. Um, it if it were tutorable, it would be easily my favorite stacks piece in this deck. Alas, it is not. Um, but I think that whole archetypes having been built around Blood Moon tells us how good non basic land hate is. Um, the last stacks piece which comes to my mind now is Codex Shredder, which admittedly is more of a combo piece than a stacks I, piece, but it does do enough double duty that, you know, I, it's I, not, really, I, I, don't, I don't play uh, it, but I, it's, it's a great hard outlet that just happens to have a side hustle of top deck tutor hate. I really just feel like that card is not as good as people think it is. Like... Look, my, my, my perspective here is, is as follows. When you are winning and you're already able to cast your library, Codex Shredder is completely unnecessary. It's totally win more. The recursion that it gives us is expensive and also kind of not really doing what we want to do. Like, at the point that you're trying to recur some kind of stacks piece or something, if it's not Isochron Scepter, you're not in a great place to begin with. Like, that's a really shitty spot to be in overall. And, and I don't think Codex Shredder really does anything to get you there. And the final point is that People playing into like no one's gonna no one's gonna tutor into Codex Shredder unless they're bad. So it is a stacks piece in the sense that you probably will prevent people from playing their their top deck tutors. Um, but I I just am not convinced that it's actually that good because a lot of these are instant speed and people will just wait until you tap it and respond. 
See, I've actually made the other. Um, um, it's already late in Germany, so my English isn't that good right now. <laughs> I've experienced, experienced it in another way. So a lot of people make them actually make the mistake of playing a top deck tutor into a Codex Shredder mm. because they don't see the card that often. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, you can say they play bad, but it's it, it really do, does put in some work. And then also what I like to do is um, like I like to assess the pot and see which deck is their least... Um, graveyard reliant or has may have had the least uh, recursion effects and then i'd like i like to mill them for one every turn cycle this is where we differentiate because i i'm off codex shredder for a lot of the reasons sinivi said but when i had it i would mill myself for one to fuel delve because i felt that it was better for me to have cards in my graveyard than anybody else i'm not gonna lie I play Codex Shredder to Fuel Delve. I mean, is it, it, it's, a such a, very... it's such a minor <laughs> upside that I felt it better to have cards in my graveyard, which I could then sacrifice Codex Shredder to get back, or <laughs> Fuel Delve. I'm like, well, I might as well do it. And I think it's it's better for people oh, to have cards in their graveyard than in their deck, with very limited exceptions. So, I it, I know it sends a message. It sends a message to mill someone for one, but I I don't I don't often think that that's the right thing to do. I think it's definitely closer to the fine line of it being stronger as a mock sapphire than it is as you know the, its text. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's not exactly mock sapphire. And, <laughs> it certainly becomes tough to to you know uh, um, finally tune a deck when you know you do have the base condition of of mock sapphire oh, for sure. How could I forget about but all-time th- favorite Juntu stakes? So, as part uh, as part of the mana attack strategy, a way that people can get around back as well as Winter Orb is to use creature-based ramp, elves, and what have you. Um, and Juntu Stakes makes every one of those creatures not be able to untap. Um, I suppose with the exception of something like Fabro Elder. Um, it also happens to be exceptional against Najila. Not, not just win the game, but yeah. it makes them not be able to pressure people until they're trying to go for their combo. So some of these you can kind of pick a la carte, like what do I see a lot of, and then tech in some of those. The Pithing Needle that I know Sinivi plays, as well as his Tormon's Crypt, would be good against uh, Thrasiocentric decks and Graveyard decks, respectively. If you see a lot of those, drop them in. If you don't, maybe pick something else. I think that's really important in general. So with this deck being very adaptive, if you want uh, to use that uh, those those terms, um, you will definitely have to assess your uh, own meta as good as you can because it's really important to put in the right stacks pieces for your meta. And being uh, playing in a blind meta, which I do, I can only use the most or the the most. Uh, those who those stacks pieces that uh, interact with most tables and I can't be too specific uh, when choosing the stacks pieces I add into my list it does make sense yeah 100% um, so this next section is uh, interaction and and blue I think that's a bit of a more of like a cut and dry um, suite of cards but obviously let's let's go into it so 
um, the first on interaction, and you know, the mono blue staple is counter spells. So, what kind of counter spells are we playing? Um, well, the usual free counter spells. Uh, we have force of will. Um, a lot of people play force of negation. I've heard of people cutting it because of the card disadvantage. Um, and we have, of course, Swan Song, Pact of Negation, Narset's Reversal is kind of a counterspell. Um, we have Model the Mixture, which we mainly use as a tutor, but it's also a counterspell, which is nice. Uh, of course, Mental Misstep to stop, the, stop those turn one um, fish or turn one uh, carpet of flowers. Uh, Mana Drain, of course. Um, Let's see what else we got. We got Flusterstorm, although it's a soft counter spell, it has Storm, which is incredible. Um, Fierce Guardianship is a uh, new addition because, yeah, well, our deck is commander centric and we try to get him out as early as turn two. So it makes for a free negate, which is nice. Um, I personally play Dispel. We have Delay, which is more often than not a hard counter spell. Um, of course, counter spell, and then think that's yeah that should be it and i s know that a lot of people play some other counter spells which i'm not on because mainly i dislike soft counter spells yeah i think it's probably worth it to talk just about that class of counter spell because a lot of the other ones are sort of like obviously you would play this right like you're playing mono blue and mono blue plays counter spells and these are the best counter spells and and like yeah you jam them of course you do but then there's a cat a class i think of like soft counter or conditional counter that is where this conversation is material or interesting and that includes stuff like spell pierce and miscast and even like mana leak i know that i'm on mana leak because it hits everything and this deck really struggles for example with permanent removal like once it's on board and we're probably going to talk about some of that in the other interaction section but like you know mana leak hitting creatures is super super relevant i know that a lot of people are kind of hyper fixated on you know the fact that we're in this uh ad nauseum meta and spells really matter and are more keen to play something like miscast or spell pierce but I like Mana Leak because it hits all of the creatures that help those decks get there, and it can be pointed at Dockside, and you know you can fight over other random things that you wouldn't expect to be able to, or you wouldn't be able to interact with, with like a Spell Pierce or a uh, or a Miscast. I have fewer counter spells in my list than some others. Um, naturally, this is because of the the meta game which I play in, which includes many more grindy decks and fewer fast combo decks, where the opportunity cost of playing one-for-one -one interaction is a little bit higher. Um, notably, the only, the one I think is most contentious would be I don't play uh, Force of Negation. Uh, did, would consider that more if there were more instant speed wins going around. My other big stipulation with Force of Negation is that it can't be profitably used to protect your own combo, which I think is uh, very valuable. Um, right. It, it's, it's great right. against as an interaction against other people, the exile clause is significant for sure. Um, and I, I would slot that in if I played against more fast combo decks, absolutely. On the soft counter spells, again, being in a grindy metagame means it's just no possibility to do that. Something like Spell Pierce is dead too fast. Um, I suppose I, I should make specific reference to Spell Snare. Please don't, please don't play Spell Snare. It's it's too narrow. It can be good, but it can also be 
not good, and it can be not good very easily. Yeah, I really, uh, I tested Spellsnare quite uh, extensively, and the, the biggest issue I see is that it's, it's only better than other spells, uh, counter spells we play, is when it's when it targets a 2-CMC creature, because most yeah. of our counter spells don't target creatures, so that makes spells uh, very narrow. Of course, um, it targets some of the strongest creatures, being Thassa's uh, or Oracle, Dockside Explosionist, and we also have Bob and other good stuff, but mainly Thassa's and Dockside. And yeah, well, it's even though it targets those really incredibly good cards, it's just overall too narrow, so it's it's dead more often than it's useful. There's also a number of people who play uh, negate, just actual factual. I think that's in the was and remains in the original UPS list. But um, in by the same stroke as as I criticize spell snare, I would say that negate has uh, little little more little too narrow for what I'd ask of a two CMC counter spell. Um, all of the two CMC counter spells I play are are with the exception of Muddle the Mixer, um, unconditional will counter basically everything. Um, so it's just, it's 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 a huge opportunity cost to just throw away your cards. Well, I shouldn't say throw away. It's a huge opportunity cost to be the one to interact with a two-mana spell, have to hold it up for a couple turns and not be able to advance your own game plan. And you can very easily find yourself in a play pattern where you put in too much interaction, you're the one who stops someone comboing off only to watch the next player in turn order just win and then you're sad it also really goes down to piloting the deck so a lot of people think that being playing mono blue you have to kind of police the table which is definitely not what we want to do especially in multiplayer format because you will run out of gas quicker uh, than anyone else and then yeah, just what Keegan just said will happen you will watch the next yeah, person absolutely. win yeah absolutely uh, and then also on the gate, uh, since we have uh, fierce guardianship, I don't think there's any reason to include negate into your deck. Yeah, and of course there are, uh, you know, non counter spell interaction spells. So uh, let's get into that. So what kind of removal do we have that's not um, primi primarily aimed at protecting the stack? The silence is because we don't have any. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. We probably, like, we have, uh, you know, there's this is uh, a card that I think gets omitted from a lot of other uh, decks in this format that I think is is impossible to omit here is Cyclonic Rift. Um, it frequently is a tutor target for myself just because it is pretty much the only universal answer we have to a lot of uh, problems or situations. Um, so I, I, you know, that that card obviously gets in here. Um, I think all of us are playing Chain of Vapor. Uh, you know, one one CMZ bounce is good. Um, I'm also on Winds of Rebuke. Um, again, I'm I'm playing against a lot of things that Winds kind of interacts well with or shuts down. Um, and unlike Crodex Shredder, uh, people <laughs> don't know you have it when you when they go to top deck tutor. So you can actually blow a lot of people out with this and. Uh, this is I've done this more times than I can count since adding it back to the deck, and uh, I don't think I'll be taking it out just because the surprise factor really just pantses some people. Um, really, really like that aspect of the card. The non-creature, sorry, the the non-interact the interaction I have that doesn't use the stack 
is is very similar to the rest of you folks. Uh, as a replacement for Windsor Rebuke, um, I play Reality Shift. Similarly, it messes with top deck tutors. The exile clause is relevant, and it's uh, loopable with time twister loops to exile libraries. Um, one aspect I want to highlight besides the bounce is the, the theft effects are removal, but better. So um, I play and would recommend anyone playing in a CDH metagame to jump on top of Steel Enchantment. It's enormous, and it's very, very good against things that are good against us. So Carpet of Flowers and Smothering Tithe, uh, Ristic Study, Mystic Remora, anything of this nature, Necropotence, which allows people to just skyrocket on mana, which is what we're trying to attack, as well as get cards throughout a longer game without having to invest mana in it. Th those are things which cripple Urza, and having a two-mana answer to that, that just, as a bonus, happens to give you the advantage of that card, just can I cannot... I cannot overstate how valuable this card is in, in combating those strategies. Otherwise, there's cre creature theft effects yeah. in uh, Legacies Allure and Vidalcan Shackles. Uh, I'm only on Legacies Allure because it's exceptional at stealing Thrasios, so that, that makes it worth it pretty much on its face value to me. Um, Vidalcan Shackles, I know, Sinivi, you, you've had success with that. For me, I found it a little too mana-intensive, but... Um, you know, pick your poison on what you want to remove, but it's it's better to spend your resource not to one for one, but to actually recoup that card by taking it back. So so theft effects are exceptional for that reason. Yeah, I'm on I'm on honestly, Vidalkin Shackles is something that is in and out of the deck for me. I think it in the in the games that I play blind, this card is a house. This card does so many things to so many people that they do not expect that it is like, I can't come to cutting it in the blind. I mean, I play a lot against a lot of hate bears, and this thing taking stuff like someone else's Draneth or um, like uh, a Grand Abolisher is super good. Um, and yeah, being able to steal people's Thrasios and like take someone's Timna and then start hitting with Construct and Urza, like. There are no, there are so many situations where it's just super ultra mega value that I I'm like really hot on it. Um, but I I totally could see not playing it, especially if you're not playing against a lot of stuff like that. Like if you're in the what people refer to as the finish meta, which I think is just like generic Grixis dot deck. Um, yeah, it's probably not very good, and it's too mana intensive to be super relevant. If you weren't on Poly uh, or like Bouncy Boy combo, would you think about not playing it? Yeah, definitely. I think I think I think you don't need it if you have Gilded Drake. Like <laughs> Gilded yeah, Drake okay. is just like, like so much better. You obviously yeah, like like you have the added advantage of being able to tutor for it. Though like I mean like that kind of play is, is definitely a questionable tutor, but you do have that option. Uh, obviously with Gilded Drake your greatest tutor is Metal the Mixture, which is also not a card that's, that every Urza deck me. runs. Um uh, I've I've yet to come across uh, an Urza deck that, that didn't have a Muddle the Mixture. Okay, I could just be I could just be getting that wrong. Yep. I would I would definitely just, say that not finds, playing level is wrong. Your both halves of ISO Rev and both halves of Grim Monolith Power Artifact, and then also is a very playable counterspell on top of that. 
Yeah, well, you should definitely include it. If you're not including it, you're <laughs> wrong. <Yeah. laughs> sure. I love it. I love it when we have. St- I love it when we have takes that are like, "No, you not playing this is wrong." <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny that you mentioned. Honestly, I I've been on muddle like 100, percent and. I've, I don't know, I guess, like, historically I've had pushback, and maybe that's just why I had that assumption, but, like, I mean, yeah, clearly looking at your list, like, you all read Muddle, and, of course, it's, it's, you recommend it, so. It's also, it's the only way uh, outside of uh, intuition to get power artifact. So, yeah. not including is, it is just stupid. So, I, I personally, I would say that if we had an enchantment tutor, a blue enchantment tutor, which is something that does not exist, it, only in my dreams, but uh, if we had that, uh, I would 100% include it, because you can get Rhystic, Mystic, uh, Remora, and then, of course, uh, Power Artifact, and also... Why, why search for a Rhystic study when you can search for a Steel Enchantment to just take yeah, somebody else's? I'm, I'm not gonna lie, I have to say, I hope that, you know, I know you want a Mono Blue Artifact, or, I'm sorry, a Mono Blue Enchantment Tutor to exist, but I really hope it doesn't. Because it would just make everyone else better at getting Mr. Gamora and uh, Rhystic Study into play, and please God, we don't need more of that. I like, I will happily pass on that bullshit. Yeah, we need some sort of heavy restriction for sure. Narrow, like um, if you control Urza, search for a two, <laughs> two mana. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> me- me- metal craft. No covered basics that you have. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right, I'm writing that template. one down. That's how we have to template all the new cards we want for Mono Blue, because anything that's printed that makes Urza better just happens to also make every other good deck better. Like, uh, Fierce Guardianship is exceptional in Urza, but it just <laughs> it just also is great it's in every other four amazing deck. and all Thrasios yeah. decks, yeah. So we, we, need, uh, we need to add, Wizards, if you're listening, add snow-covered permanent stipulations. That's what we need. All right, so I think that gives a pretty good bow on the end of uh, interaction for sure. So let's move on to uh, card selection and card advantage. Um, this is kind of in the form of cantrips and tutors, but also how you generate card advantage uh, in the form of actual cards. Oh boy, the spiciest section of this uh, podcast, perhaps, because um, I think all of us who play this deck a lot know that this is the sore spot for the deck. Why is that? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why do you guys want to go? go and we move on. Yeah. <laughs> so you, I mean, you wouldn't right, think that right. of card, a card mono blue deck because like all the cantrips and stuff, but it actually comes down to what we talked about earlier: is that we are able to um, to vomit our hand onto the board, and then there's times where we do not have a lot of things to do in the mid game because we can't draw into other cards so of course we play the usual rhystic and mystic and then the usual cantrips being brainstorm preordain and ponder and then i know that keegan plays both the or all three baubles which mm-hmm. also cantrip but those are only cantrips so we don't mm-hmm. what we are lacking is a Card advantage engine, which uh, most of the partner commanders are. So, if you have Timna, for example, or Thrasios, or Chrome, 
All of these are card advantage engines in the command zone, which is something we do not have. Which uh, means that while other players, opponents, are constantly refueling their hands, uh, there can be a point in the game where we are close to being hellbent. To reiterate a, a, a previous point too in that regard, um, Urza's 5 mana ability is not a Thrasios activation, like not even close. Uh, so it, it it's yeah it's certainly tempting to just to you know activate it like or a Thrasios, but that is uh, not exactly uh, a great source of card advantage. I mean, there will be times where you can get away with activating Urza because you don't have anything else to do, but those are fewer and far between. And when you're at that point, you're really like very desperate. And you know, like I was saying earlier, this deck does not top deck very well. So when you get to the point where you've barfed out your hand and you have some interaction left and not much else, top decking is not something we're super strong at because we have a lot of like singular interaction. We have a lot of rocks, um, but we don't. We're really kind of light on cards that unto themselves are just bombs. So we don't have a lot of like single card rips that that we can just windmill slam and force the table to react to. Yeah. There's there's a lot of air in this deck, and as and <laughs> anyone knows, you need a good gas to air mixture to actually make it run right, which makes the top decking so poor. Um, most of our forms of card advantage will be well, maybe not most, but they'll they'll be they'll be mass card draw either for the table or yourself. So oh, the three quality wheel effects in uh, Windfall, Time Spiral, and Time Twister. Um, if you were playing creatures, I suppose there's a consideration for Jace's Archivist, but that's worse than those, obviously. Um, and I, I've seen people even play something like Time Reversal, which is much worse, but, I don't know, defensible, I suppose. Um, and then you have your, your like, chunky draw in Recurring Insight, which seems on its face quite poor, but when you generate as much mana as you do... The ability to, for six mana, draw 14 cards is is pretty damn good. And also gets them into your hand right away. Yeah. Because there's a real distinction in between the incremental card advantage, onboard card advantage, which would be represented by something like Mystic Remora, Ristic Study, and to a lesser extent, uh, a Planeswalker like Narset. Yeah. Um, versus something that gives you the cards right this very instant. Because I really need to say right that I, I think that not running this card is wrong! Uh, as, as we've been saying a whole bunch in this episode, but I, the, the reason is that there are just not very many things that you can do in Mono Blue that, without being a combo card or some kind of interaction, just force the table to have it or, or do something about it, and this is one of those, like, bomby cards. Like, you point this at a player with a lot of cards in their hand, and you kind of force the table to have to answer it, because I, I honestly, any time I have ever resolved recurring insight i think i have won the game like I, I can't think of a time when i didn't draw eight to 14 cards and s proceeded to lose right like that's right exactly <laughs> but like that's one the, of those times but, but, but that's someone else drawing that many cards and then of course they're gonna win right so it's like the point is this is not this card doesn't read you win the game but drawing that many cards is very difficult to lose once you have done it so like it's it's one of those things that i can't 
really good over cutting because we just don't have a density of payoffs in this deck. And when you top deck this card and you can cast it, you should, because if people don't have it, you're going to win or you're going to have an answer to whatever they're trying to do to win for sure. To speak to our desperation of card advantage, uh, really the only things that I, I imagine we all play would be Factor Fiction, Dig Through Time, Recurring Insight, and The Wheels. Um, I have the addition of Paradoxical Outcome, which is, is much more niche and not... It, it's different. It's different for a couple reasons. Um, but of the new cards, I've elected to test Seagig Restoration, which is a terrible piece of card advantage, but it just, show, it just shows how far you have to reach to, to get something which could be playable. Um, and that it just acts as a land is upside. I can't comment on its effectiveness very well, but it, it's it's clearly much worse than any card advantage spell. I'm going to keep harping on this, but into the rest I don't the think... Seems valuable to me. I agree... I agree with all of this. The, the I think it's worth harping on how important it is to have live top decks. And Seagate Restoration is not a live top deck, right? Like, if your hand doesn't have cards in it, you draw this card, it's not going to get you more cards. So it's it's a problem in that way. Like, Recurring Insight, like, you, your hand is empty, you at least have a prayer with Recurring Insight of getting back into the game, or with Time Spiral, or with Windfall, or with Time Twister. Like, all the other cards we play, if you talk up them, you're like, thank God. Right, like you, you cannot do something. This card, no, not not at all. Yeah, uh, I've experimented also with the instant speed draw X cards. I think the the best of that is pull from tomorrow as blue blue X um, to draw that many and then and then discard one. And these are a poor rate because. It's just you don't get a ton of cards for the mana investment. You get, uh, you know, X minus two or three. And then they also are pretty bad early, which is unfortunate. Um, the advantage is that if you're in a sandbaggy metagame, you can hold up all of your mana and then do that end of turn. And then I suppose pray that it resolves. But if it doesn't, at least you can untap and try and do something else scary. Uh, I believe ev all of us have cut those. I know that I have. Um, I also see Blue Sun Zenith semi-regularly as a hard outlet. Um, I know we've discussed that that's not necessary, and so instead I would just play something that... Yeah, I agree. Look, like, the, the does, people argue about these X draw spells all the time, advantage. and for 6 mana at instant speed, you draw 3 cards. Versus at 6 mana with recurring insight, you're going to draw 14 cards? What? Like, it's not even remotely comparable. Like, the fact that you can do it on your turn or do it on a different turn is, like, sometimes relevant, yes, but the the discrepancy in how many cards these these two spells draw is massive. It is massive. Yeah, that's also a reason why I cut uh, Dig Through Time. Of course, it has Delph, and as Keegan said, you can feed your own graveyard with uh, Codex Shredder. But I, but I've, uh, I've found it to be way too expensive in most games because, like, we don't have, uh, we we don't play Tassigor or anything. We don't, we're not, in that remark, a spell slinger deck which uh, fills the graveyard very quick quickly. And then I've, I found myself to be in the position where it, it was like 
five mana or six mana, and then it got countered, which really hurt. And I've already exiled cards. Um, yeah, so that was definitely a card um, I didn't find to be as strong as other people do, and that's why I cut it. Um, I added another really good card for it, which is Steel Enchantment, and I use that to, of course, steal Rhystics or Mystics, or even um, Sylvan Library, which is also. That is a that is a hey man, smothering like tide, getting treasures and not having to crack true. them is pretty sweet. Getting mox <laughs> sapphires actually, yeah. Actual mox sapphires, yeah. So um, we've touched on a lot here, and um, to wrap up this section, I, I want to talk about uh, one of our later uh, categories, which is tech cards, and then um, we'll finish it off with any kind of final remarks. So, uh, what kind of tech cards are you guys running? Okay, so my personal pet card i would say for the deck is phyrexian metamorph um it's a very it's a pretty new include to the list because we cut ethereum sculptor and i definitely wanted another creature in the deck because without that there wouldn't be any reason to actually stay on ups and then i found myself to be in a position where i wanted to copy people's or actually i wanted to steal people's card uh, advantage engines which are mostly uh, creatures so thresios timna chrome nifmizit etc and yeah well that was not possible because there wasn't a good card to do that except for gilded drake and then i opted for um phyrexian metamorph which really puts in a lot of work so you, you can tutor it it costs only three mana. You can copy uh, Thras Thrasios. You can copy Nifmizid. You can copy. I've copied um, what's it called uh, Bob, which won me games. Um, like in my opinion, yeah. it's very strong, and it helps to fix the card advantage problem. But of course, you rely on a opponent playing a card advantage engine, which is of course something we usually do not want, but we also cannot stop most of the time. So we can as well use it for our own benefit. The fact that it also taps for mana because, because it's an artifact is like, like that's, that's pretty. I love that. The cards that I run, which may not be. As, as stock and would see variants amongst the lists um, include yeah, Dig Through Time. Um, I, I actually end up searching that a good, a good deal in games that run late with something like a Merchant Scroll just because it, it, it digs, no pun intended, uh, very far. Um, another piece of card advantage which I run, which others may not, is a paradoxical outcome. Things do have to be going all right for it to be good, but in a situation where you can draw a bunch of cards with it, it happens to not only be free but it usually nets mana while drawing you a bunch of cards which is in itself phenomenal and it plays a okay role at protecting urza and or some of your other stacks pieces um otherwise perhaps the the spicy ones i have are are lands uh seagate restoration is by no means an established good card yet but uh, giving it a fair shake um one card which i do really like is talaria west as we've said the Density of tutors in mono blue is severely lacking, and so I'll, I'll take pretty much whatever I can get there. Um, finding Mana Crypt is usually the way that I go for it, but it does also allow you to find the hyper-powerful card uh, 
Tabernacle, as well as the very useful card uh, Inventor's Fair and Mystic Sanctuary. And in certain scenarios where I'm looking to protect a combo, you can also find yourself with a Pact of Negation, which is useful. Um, otherwise, enchantments-based uh, Steel Enchantment is just amazing, although that's perhaps hardly a pet card at this point. And uh, Legacies Allure I play because Thrasios is everywhere, and this deck plays really, really <laughs> like, well. With I love that. Like our best thing is Thrasios, which is like, which is true and awesome. And I agree is another good reason to play Legacy Allure and Phyrexian Metamorph. Uh, before before I like say something really spicy, which I think I'm about to do, and I think we maybe alluded to it earlier. Um, <laughs> I I want to say one thing about a land that you mentioned because I don't know if we're going to have another chance to talk about this, but Mystic Sanctuary, I. In the, in the theme of, you know, saying people are wrong uh, that we've sort of been on throughout this episode, <laughs> not playing Mystic Sanctuary is wrong. You are wrong if you are not playing Mystic Sanctuary. The reason is that this card recurs all of your most relevant, like, interaction and tutors and ability to, like, you know, whir stuff onto the battlefield and can be fetched. The fact that you can polymorph, get a countered, fetch, uh, it back to the top of your library at end of turn and try again the next turn. This card is amazing. The number of situations it's gotten me out of is is just like mind blowing. You know the fact that it's an island and can be fetched. It's like I can't I cannot imagine playing this deck without that card. And I I feel like I needed to say that on this episode if I said literally nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Mystic Sanctuary makes intuition very good, as well as making all of your fetch lands incidentally into Noxious Revival, which is valuable. Um so so back to spice and, and tech cards. Um I think there are two or three that I'm probably on, uh but not in not in Polytyrant, actually. So so I have I have been playing UPS more recently just to explore more space and to try to uh, do something about what I have called or, or think is like the turbo stacks meta on play DH sometimes. Um, turns out just there are a lot of stacks decks you can play that are cheaper than you know the fully powered decks and I think a lot of people when playing in paper uh, tend to go toward these. So I've, I've been seeing a lot of that recently and two cards that I I really like. Um, one is Emergence Zone. Uh, we were talking about being able to win at instant speed earlier, and this card turning on Polymorph uh, and other cards at instant speed is nuts. It is great. I love this thing. Um, it feels it feels pretty free to me for the most part because I'm not running very many other cards that don't uh, create blue mana. And otherwise, you know, being able to surprise someone, you know, by winning at instant speed has been amazing in my testing so far yeah i have um, to deal with that i i've been experimenting with emergence zone even in my like three or four color decks and i've been pretty happy with it yeah it, it just enables a bunch of things that like people are not ready to play around i mean you know the fact that i, I was we were talking earlier about torpor orb and being able to cast like hate pieces at instant speed is also super good like if you just randomly have this and you have an answer or a way to respond to something uh, that, for whatever reason, you haven't played out, and we, we can get into the details of why that might be when we get into piloting, but being able to play that stuff at instant speed is is sick, and it completely blows people out. Um, other spicy card that I'm on that I, I think is probably too spicy for most people, um, I have started to play in the UPS build Deadeye Navigator, 
Um, the reason is that it interacts favorably with many of the other creatures we've already talked about, um, Spellseeker uh, and Phyrexian Metamorph being really amazing examples. But the other thing that it does that is is sort of like low-key sick is it ramps with Urza and the Constructs, and this card on its own has been pretty interesting to watch people try to respond to it, because people like either misunderstand how the Soulbind trigger works, or like it doesn't occur to them that for one mana you can start ramping Constructs, because every time you get another construct, you can make another mana. So you can like play this out, and if people don't fight over it, you can wait, and you can start like building a whole bunch of constructs. And at the end of turn, untap with, oh, I don't know, 20 power or more on the board, and suddenly be in this position where you can win the game. And I didn't expect that when I started playing the card, but I've been finding it to be super spicy. The, uh... T- the tender shoot dryad of mono blue. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's too spicy for my blood. <laughs> I it, it's interesting because a couple of the cards that you mentioned, I think, uh, benefit from a play group which is not totally. experienced playing against Urza. So you mentioned that uh, you 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 get you have a lot to gain with people not understanding soulbond triggers or what have you. And I think some of this applies to both Dead Eye Navigator and Emergence Zone in that uh, a savvy opponent will clearly not realize that you just pass the turn for no reason and will recognize your posturing and uh, hold up interaction accordingly, whereas someone who is perhaps newer to, uh, if not the format in general, at least Urza, playing specifically against Urza, may not respect that as much and be like, well, they passed the turn, so I'm, I'm free to, to dump out some stuff and give yourself an opening. Um, and that that can work. That can work in some metagames, but I have... Uh, I have a resistance to playing cards which are at their best when your opponent's I, yeah, I, I think that's I, a I fair think, overall philosophy. <laughs> I agree. I don't I don't think that this card particularly excels when you can pass the turn with it. I think it's more that when you play the card, the thing that goes through most of your opponent's minds is not, oh, he's gonna make one mana constructs. Right? Like that's that's the part that I think is is pretty good here. Like if you play it and you have a spell seeker, obviously like people know what you're gonna do, right? Like it's it's really clear, but the fact that you can play this card and soul bond it, and then you can blink stuff to obviate single target removal, or you can just try to value get value out of it, um, has so far been pretty decent. Now, all of that said, I completely recognize that this is a very 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 spicy ridiculous take uh, on this deck, <laughs> and at this point, I'm like trying to jam cards like this to try to, as we were talking about earlier, try to increase the density of sort of must answer cards or cards that can incidentally win on their own and this card does that like the fact that you can blink urza and suddenly have a whole bunch more mana and a whole bunch more power is really good the fact that with spellseeker it just automatically wins the game because it finds you the two combo pieces that you need to win the game um the fact that with metamorph you copy right like it just there's a lot of value that you can uh squeeze out of this card um even though i'm not convinced i would take it to a a tournament just yet I will say that Urza is very forgiving for a wide range of deck building choices because the commander itself has such a powerful ability, makes so much mana, that if you just have a personal interest or a play style which wants you to be playing particular cards, then you can slot three to four of those in as flex slots and they'll be they'll be fine. Like you're not gonna you're not gonna see an enormous drop off in in, in win rates just because you, you swap out a couple things because the rest of the deck yeah. is already so good that it just allows yeah, you totally. 
quite a bit of deck building leeway. Nice. Uh, and I think a, a lot of players are kind of defined by their tech cards, and it's great to you know mention them. And um, I think Dead Eye Navigator is certainly spicy. Uh, <laughs> so it's I, you know I it, I'd be really happy to see that played against me, to be honest. <laughs> So yeah, let's let's move on to piloting advice, um, and we've broken this up into kind of stages of the game, um, but also um, you know general advice uh, unique to Urza. So let's start off with the early game. Um, what are we trying to do? How are we doing it? I think the most important thing we have to do in the early game is get out Urza, probably on turn two, turn three at least. So. He's ahead of curve, and we can use his ability to ramp even more. Yeah. yeah. In the, in the first turn or two, what I'm looking to do is develop my mana to advance, and it's it's hard to keep a hand that doesn't have mana ramp that's playable on turn one or two. So to look to Mulligan to try and find that as well as use any extra mana I might have to develop uh, cantripping or card selection to fill in any gaps that your hand might have. As a piece of, of piloting advice, if you have your turn one, two, three plays all set, you you may just not want to fire off a preordain or a ponder yet. You may want to save that until the game develops and you know what you're looking for. Um, unless you're just saying, well, the only card in my deck that I would want right now is a Mana Crypt, it may be worth uh, hanging on to that, because after you cast your Urza, you always have one extra mana kicking around, and at that point, you could you could play something. So think, think about the first maybe four turns, how you intend to spend your mana, and if there's an opportunity to use your cantrips later, if your hand is already good enough, then yeah, maybe hold I on to those. will agree with that. I think that you need to really read the table. So this is this is getting into like I really put a premium on hands that um, have uh, a one a one mana interaction spell plus ramp um, because it gives you the opportunity to make a decision about like ramping or sorry I'm sorry it precludes you having to make decisions about whether or not whether you ramp or hold up interaction because as long as you can get to urza you will and it resolves you will have one mana afterwards so i love the one mana interaction spells as a, as a matter of fact like i'm playing i think both pongify and rapid hybridization instead of reality shift just because they're both one mana um for this exact reason it just increases the density of hands that you have where you can ramp right into urza and then still have a single mana available afterwards to do stuff um and I think that, you know, playing Urza otherwise has to be a decision about does this move my game forward and or will I just lose if I don't have the opportunity to respond in the next two or three turns? Uh, and that's a thing that I've been really struggling with, I think, recently is that, you know, if you, you might manage to disrupt somebody uh, in the first two turn cycles on turn three, you play Urza and you don't have a piece of free interaction or something and then someone else just wins. Um, yeah. Yeah. One, one last note, I think, for early game uh, is uh, Flash is banned now. So developing early is a lot more uh, yeah. safe and yeah. ultimately affects your your late game uh, a lot more positively than than you might expect. So I think uh, this is kind of a trend I've seen recently where like I don't see a lot of the early removal spells and early interaction that... Um, was kind of specifically more for the Flash meta. Like I still see that around in Decklist and like... Uh, it's more 
proactive to um, develop uh, into Urza early. Absolutely. You, if you're not pursuing your own game plan and you're playing yeah. entirely reactionary, yeah. you're not going to win. I had to you're learn that the hard way. So when I was progressing into CDH, um, I played Urza more stacksy. If you want, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, the only thing that happened is that I had like one and a half, two hour games, and I still couldn't win. Um, and then I um, gra gradually became more proactive, where I'm at a point now um, that I think uh, ramping out Urza early and kind of um, not being the, po the not policing the table, but like focusing on advancing your own bo own board state makes the deck much better well said so at this point i guess we have urza in play um we've you know used a significant amount of cards in our hand um it's around turn two turn three so this is i guess where the mid game starts uh what are we trying to do now i'm trying to stick an orb effect uh as soon as i see people with lots of permanents that they have tapped down to do something like try to develop further or whatever else. I, I mean, this is this is really the part of the game where you want to start to eyeball your orb effects and your your disruptive elements because they're not very good like jamming them super quickly. People don't just don't have that many permanents. They're not going to tap them. They're also not very good to jam into untapped mana because often people will just play the waiting game and like with most stacks effects, it's not really correct to remove this unless you need to to win. And when you can just hold up your mana you can just win around it. Um, so I, I tend to try to sandbag, uh, along with interaction, I try to sandbag those orb effects for turns or positions where people have tapped down a lot of mana, and then I really like to jam them because it completely clogs the game and stops most, most decks from winning. It's important to get your first mid-game either card advantage or disruptive, yeah. disruptive piece to resolve and th this is where a lot of the piloting skill comes in in a way that we can't really help you with because you just need to channel your inner poker player and feel out the the texture of a room to determine if someone is intending to interact with you because you'll often want to develop this after urza has come out because urza unlocks so much of your mana so after that's happened that's when you want to start doing your winter static orb type things and if you have a prediction that that's just gonna immediately eat a removal or a counter spell then that's a highly wasted turn naturally if you have literally nothing to do it it feels kind of bad but uh you know better that they have let their two mana rot than to have used an effective removal spell on yours um also this is the time when other people might start be trying to win but yeah. it's unlikely that you will that's because Urza is point. not amongst the fastest decks. Uh, you're probably looking till turn five or later to actually win. So at this point, if you can sandbag your interaction to stop them from winning, as well as to protect your Urza in the disruptive piece. Um, also, a note on um, when to use your resources. In the mid game, I think that it is a good idea to use your interaction to protect your own permanence be they disruptive or incremental card advantage because you'll need them to last for a little while but that's not a luxury that you have in the later stages 
Because if I if I spend my Swan Song and my Flusterstorm protecting a Static Orb, great, it's still around. But then I don't have these to stop someone from winning later. So you can use you can be a little more cavalier with your interaction to protect your own things um, in the mid game. But after this point, you, sometimes you just have to bite the bullet, let it die, and save your things. So just just know when you're free to protect your own spells. And when I think in general, I agree with that. Uh, I think there are times when sticking and protecting a stacks piece will just naturally win you the game, and that's like that is when you know it becomes clear it's it's like a back to basics or something. It's shut off. You know, everyone else at the table, and you're maybe not really doing anything, but neither are they. Um, great time to try to protect that if someone tries to remove it. Generally, you will know that they will be winning if they succeed. Um, the other thing is that uh, these are, you know, sticking one of these effects like and riding it to a win is really, really good when you have a path to a win as well. So I also will tend to uh, agree that, you know, if you have like a tutor uh, or even if it's conditional, um, I would absolutely try to jam one of these effects because most other people will go faster than you will to win uh, and then spend whatever other cards I might have like defending that until we have like a window where we can tutor and try to try to go off yeah those are some great points for sure um, I think kind of maybe a silent point that came out of that discussion is like there is like a very gradual change from mid to late game and it's because I think it's mostly because the stacks pieces are largely effective at both both of those stages of the game. So um, maybe let's go a bit more into that. Someone wanna was that was that a yeah? Sorry, go I, I mean okay. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. sorry. Um, I, 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 well, I'm just waiting for Eisen because it's kind of hard. So if you have the stacks pieces out in the late game. It's obviously it's uh, it's really good to have them there, but also spending the the uh, mana to to protect them is like it, it can hurt you from stopping another player from comboing off. Because uh, like I personally had the um, had the experience that players were um, waiting out the game, playing land after land after land after land, leaving them untapped because they knew that the other players weren't able to go to 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 win. With the stacks pieces out until they were at a point where they had like three mana or four mana open and were able to cast a thesis oracle into a demonic consultation which is such a compact combo that um often um you will have to keep up the interaction instead of protecting the the stacks piece at that point yeah and i and i want to ideally once you've moved into the late game you have some way to gain advantage as turns go on, be that uh, Ristic Mystic, some onboard card advantage, or something that makes your mana unlocked while preventing other people's. So ideally you have that. If you don't, this may be a time to try and go find it. If you're going into the late game without a onboard way to take advantage of turns ticking by, it's probably a good idea to, to try and find something that does that. Uh, the other things that you're going to want to do there are to pressure players with your construct uh you want someone else to try and win first because it's rare that the first person who can try and win unless they're doing it turn one or two is actually gonna be able to punch through with it so what you want to do is just 
beat the crap out of the player who you think is going to try and win first and force them to do it, and then have them go half-cocked, get stopped, ideally by the other members of your table. And then once that's happened, you now have an opening to pursue your own win. So try and try and use your construct and your mana attack pieces to create an opening where someone has to go off before they're ready and then and just do it after them. You can also make good use of uh, turn order here. If you're beating up on somebody, uh, try and beat up on, obviously, the person who used their life total over resource. But if it's ever a split decision, uh, beat up on the person to your right because then they'll have to go off and it will be immediately be your turn right after. I, uh, I have two things I think are worth saying here. Like as a, as a heuristic or like a rule of thumb for when to go off, I think there in, in general, like I have this philosophy of like, there are two good times with this deck to try to go off. One of them is exactly what Keegan uh, was pointing out where someone else has tried to go off and you now get to, because someone else has been stabbed and people have expended stuff. Uh, usually a great time to try. Uh, you don't want to be first ever. Um, the other is when you know that you will not get another turn, uh, or you know that this will be the only or best window or opportunity you have to do it. Um, and I think that one is much more nuanced and much harder to ascertain. But there are some clear, you know, like some clear indicators. And the reason I'm saying that one now is because I think it also bleeds into something that I wanted to talk about later in this section about king making. Um, because you do play stacks and uh, counter magic. Um, you have to be really, really careful playing this deck not to king make. Like that scenario that Eisenhower was talking about, where you know he jammed this, this he jammed a, a static orb effect, and slowly one player you know untaps their land and then just keeps playing land go and doing nothing else. Like that is dangerous because you can't you can't just ignore them, but you also can't try to go off because. You've you now are in this position where if the other players at the table are not hitting land drops, uh, if you if you do and that player stops you or you, or or similar, you have just made them the winner, right? So that's also important. Uh, on that note, it's important to note that we are not the grindiest decks. So if we are in a position where there's a lot of stacks out, let's say we have a, a back to basics and an orb, um, the game is pretty much slowed down to a point where. Uh, Turbo decks aren't that big of a threat anymore, but also we aren't a big threat anymore because we can't do a lot if we don't have a card and uh, engine in play. So sure, the we have mana available, but if we are not able to cast spells, we can't use our um, we can't effectively use our commander to generate card advantage. So the best thing we are able to do is what Keegan just said: is to attack with our constru construct, um, and that's important to understand the fact that we are not a dedicated stack stack we use the deck to deny, deny mana to open up a window to win in the mid to early late game there's something to be said also for um, how you're positioned versus how many risks you're willing to take if you've set yourself up exceptionally well in the early and mid game you have the option to play it safe throughout the late game and ride your advantage to build on it. But if things haven't broken your way, you got out of the gate a little bit more slowly, and it's only going to get worse as the game goes on, at that point you may just have to fire from the hip, because who knows, it might happen. And I know, I know the big risk plays are often 
they can be seen as kingmaking, and it's fair to say that if you deplete people's resources and allow another person to 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 win the game, you your actions have aided them. But the best chance of you winning the game, if you're behind, are often not just to sit back and allow yourself to fall behind even more. Unless unless there's a way where resources could be exchanged to go and get back into it, it it's hard to play from behind with this deck is i guess what i'm trying to say and if you are very behind you're going to have to take more risks um a notable exception to this is if you happen to have a win condition and a wheel in hand because then you can just try for the win condition if that doesn't work plan b get a new seven nice yeah i mean like and once again that like reassures the point that we made in the 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 um card selection or like deck building section which is uh card advantage is kind of the weak point and there's no you the only most like the most effective way of coming from behind is to have a solid card advantage uh system set up okay i think okay so these last three categories components of people hand piloting and not king making i think we can largely skip on those for the sake of time um but so i think i'm going to give you guys the opportunity to make final points on piloting um then we should go yeah, straight into the, the, the mulligans the collusion point yeah. Okay. So let's. Yeah. Let's. I say let's talk about collusion and then move on to the specific Mulligan guide. And then after Mulligans, if we are um, up to it, let's talk about matchups in metagame uh, briefly, and then go into gut check and questions. Are you, are you guys cool with that? I'll try to make it really quick. So the first thing is with collusion. Uh, Urza for some reason gets targeted a lot. Um, so, uh, what's really important is to be able to read the table and lay low as much as possible to not be the main threat of the table. Um, that also means that if you have a tutor, for example, um, your Isochrone Scepter or your Power Artifact, do not use it before you're not able to um, back up on it because you will be targeted after ta uh, tutoring. Because we do not have unconditional tutors, we have to reveal the cards. And then also, which comes down to um, deck building and piloting again, my final remark is uh, Turbo Urza does not work. Do not play it. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of truth there, um, and it's not, it's not just a minor experiences. We did heavy card swaps we did testing we brought out like 12 just tried to go balls to the wall make the deck a little bit like goto and i lost uh <laughs> my, my win percentage dropped 10 percent by doing that it was it was a bad idea so you have to play tricky you can't just you can't try and outrace people um anybody who's played with me on a semi-regular basis or even at all will know that i love collusion um you you need to communicate a lot while playing this deck because it's your board state often looks scary. You dump your hand out. You have a ton of non-land permanents in play often, and especially with the poly version, you really can win from nowhere. So you're often in a position which appears very dangerous. Um, the weakest aspect that you have is often your hand size, which is hidden information. So people people won't it won't be readily apparent if you're not in a great spot. So. What I would suggest is as you play this game, um, if people do point out that they're afraid of your position, you know, don't be afraid to 
honestly represent it. I know all war is deception, and you should represent yourself as in a good position sometimes, but people will tend to overestimate the position that you're in, and there's no re reason to feed into that. I mean, for, for the play experience of your playgroup, don't just sit there whining about how hard your life is, but you do need to ensure that you communicate what your stacks are doing, especially for newer players. I, I can't count the number of times I've had players uh, remove my orb effects and allow other players to untap only yeah. to see them win. In a four-player game, it's likely that one of those players would either not care about your stacks because it's hurting the other two people more, or frankly, devote resources to protecting them, even though they're not their non-land permanents. If you're not in a position to win, and Urza has a Trinisphere out, and you're just waiting to get back into the game, it's likely that you'll need that to stick around if you have any chance of winning. So, if you're playing Urza, make allies. And uh, that that's so Yeah, that's so I, find this, I find this to be especially true just in general, because Urza does is a lightning rod. People will target you because one, it's unpleasant to play against stacks effects, but two, most people understand that you are running a lot of interaction, you do have things to say, so they will tend to try to proactively prevent you from having those things to say, especially if they're trying to play a fast combo deck or they're just trying to like jam Thoracle. Um, but you like you really need to play political with this deck because um, you know <laughs> There are these so there are so many situations where like so like what Keegan was just saying, so and so wants to remove your your stacks piece and and try to do something, but because everyone else has been sitting around like shaping their hands, it's not very likely that's gonna actually work. And so you you frequently have to be like, look, I'm not going anywhere. Let's make sure that these other decks who have, you know, seven cards in hand are also not going anywhere, um, is a really important strategy to playing this deck. You have to like really tell people and explain to people that like, look. My hand is gone. I don't. I don't have anywhere that I'm going. But you know, so and so is sitting over there on six cards because he can't play anything. Like that's way more dangerous if you remove these pieces. So like, don't don't do that. Your construct also happens to be an exceptional bargaining tool, both as uh, helping other people in reducing their opponent's life total and threatening people by reducing their life total. Uh, no one wants to take seven a turn. So if you assure someone that. If they are allowing your stacks pieces to stick around, all you're intending to do is just beat the crap out of uh, one of your mutual opponents, they're likely going to be much more into this. And this is especially relevant if you're playing with pods with Timna, because while you would traditionally need to leave up a construct as a blocker to prevent attacks with Timna, if you communicate with the Timna player that, hey, if you don't attack me, I'm free to swing out my big chunk of damage on one of your opponents they're going to be more willing to do that because the alternative is you don't yeah. attack and then they can't attack. So yeah, you might I totally as well agree. I love, I, I actually really love the Timna players for those reasons. Like I, I try to pick and befriend the Timna deck at the table for that exact reason. Keegan, I'm like looking at Timna player all game long, like yeah. waiting to get an opportunity to try to barter in that way. <laughs> I do have to say I've never experienced more levels of like, 20 minute sessions of politics and collusion than I have at QMTG meetings. <laughs> like, we play long games, and half of that time is spent with a spell on the stack and 20 minutes of talking about the next, like, <laughs> 10 turns. So it's, yeah, it's fun.
you, you want to try and get as much <laughs> right. out of your resources yeah. as possible. Like, I, sure, I'll counter this spell, but if I can get if I can get the assurance that my buddy over there will get the next one, or at least like <laughs> something, he'll he'll give me a reprieve from attacks, or he won't destroy my permanence. You know, try and try and bargain a little bit. You know, you can you can get more value out of your cards than what's just printed in the text box. Yeah, Urza HR. <laughs> okay um so i think let's if you guys have any final um things to say in regards to piloting let's move on to specific mulligans cool so in this section um we've uh, randomly generated uh, you know around 20 hands and picked three that we think have notable um points to be made uh so first i'll list off the cards in this hand and then let's go and uh discuss it uh, so on the first hand, we have Chromox, Winter Orb, Tidespout Tyrant, uh, Mana Crypt, Island Island, Fierce Guardianship. So one note to be made here is this is the Poly Tyrant variant uh, that we um, generated these hands from. Uh, I just... Go ahead. Um, okay, so I'll continue. So for me, that hand is really... It's really hard to evaluate. So you can have a turn one Urza, and then a turn two Winter Orb, which is very strong, of course. And you will also have um, interaction available because, well, you wouldn't want to uh, keep Tidespot Tyrant in your hand. You would actually you would pitch it for Chromox and then go for another combo. Um, but I don't think that I would keep it personally because um, you're also hoping to top deck good, and yeah, that's not that's not uh, a point I I want to be at, and then therefore I would personally mulligan that, and yeah. This is a hand which I would keep. Um, my game plan for it would be dependent on what I drew in the first turn. So if I had a blue card to pitch to Chromebox, then I would pitch that and play the turn one Urza. As it stands, assuming I'm just drawing bricks, my game plan here is uh, Island, Crypt, Winter Orb. Naturally, the Winter Orb doesn't do anything yet, but it's good to have out early. Alternatively, you could just play uh, Land, Crypt, and then hold up Fierce Guardianship if there was something scary like a Carpet of Flowers that you wanted to counter on the first turn. So nice to have, I suppose, those options. But I I'd probably develop the Winter War. And then on the second turn, again, assuming I just drew a brick, I'd play my second island and play Urza then. Um, naturally, this is a little bit reliant on the top of your deck. Top deck <laughs> a little play, reliant. Basically, anything we draw here is playable, um, as well as if we play a turn two Urza, or again, assuming we draw something that we're interested in pitching to Chromebox, a turn one Urza, basically any card in our deck becomes action, as well as if we untap on turn three, make our land drop, and do nothing else. We have uh, two mana from the Crypt, one mana from the Chromebox. We also don't have to exile anything if Urza's played on turn two, which is a pretty big advantage. Uh, three mana from lands, and one mana from the Construct. And we're basically almost ready to just hard cast I, the oh Pony Tyrant. The other important factor is that 
you have both Chrome Mocks uh, and Mana Crypt as fodder for the, the Tyrant, which means that it becomes quite easy to put this through. So with even with below average draws, this allows us to to, thre to threaten a hard cast Tyrant I with our backup fairly early, oh God. Um, as strange as that might be. Um, and with better draws, it allows us to sandbag the tyrant and then play those disruptive. Okay, I've really, I've really struggled to listen through all of that because I can't believe that either of the two of you think that this is capable at. Like, I, I like. There's, there is only one line. It is to either jam a useless winter orb on turn one, or it's to try to like jam Urza and then have nothing to do in both cases. Like that is the worst possible position you could really be in with this deck. Like, jamming fast Wind Orb does nothing. Jamming Urza with nothing to do also does nothing. And, like, you might have a lot of, uh, you might have a lot of mana, but your 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 entire strategy is hope. Like, I do, I do not want my strategy <laughs> of my opening hand to be hope. Like, that is so bad. I, like, can't get on board with this. Uh, but, but, like, I, I, Keegan, I, I totally acknowledge and and respect the the reasoning uh, that you're you're putting forward about keeping the hand in the in the aspirationally being able to cast tides about tyrant, but like compared to the other hands we're gonna look at, compared to the hands that this deck can get that are good, and compared to like being able to take a free mulligan and like go to six and like whatever else, like I would not keep this. I just don't want to pray that I top deck something knowing that we top deck poorly. This 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 hand. This hand with a single land can cast a a, a, a turn three Tidespin Tyrant, which is oh, a god. I, but if you don't get there, I mean, I, it's it's hard it's hard to oh. counter a creature spell. Um, so so I think that it has enough of a game plan just in that, as well as then also having the audible of just being a boatload of mana that any any piece of any card that you draw is good in this in this hand. I also just I think that if you mulligan mana crypt hands, you're cursed to just not draw it anymore. <laughs> you you have to take you you can't even pass if there aren't like any lands to hope. We're now like into superstition as yeah. being reasons to keep this hand. Okay, I'm I think yeah. I'm ready to move on to another hand. Staple philosophy behind the mono blue cult, 100. percent Hope and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. So, uh, certainly a controversial one. Uh, our next hand is uh, Island, Aether Spellbomb, Polymorph, Pact of Negation, Island, Sensei's Divining Top, and Lodestone Bobble, right? Okay. So, you obviously yeah. taken these from uh, Keegan's list. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, so one freedom, I guess, is you can replace any card that you aren't running with, I don't know, a, a random card. <laughs> no. Any other card. <laughs> I mean, personally, not keep that hand uh, for the simple reason that we do not have any fast mana. So, um, sure, Ether Spellbomb is cool because um, it can draw cards. Sensei's Divining Top is card selection, um, which is also nice. So is uh, the Bauble, either Load, uh, Lodestone, Mishras, or Urza's Bauble. But the fact that we can't do anything ahead of curve um, is pretty much the yeah that's for me that's an auto uh, mulligan to be this I would this I would send back um, I, I think I would keep this on 
five, maybe, maybe six. Um, but it's not great. Yeah, I might keep this on six. Um, the fact that you don't have a fetch land to go with your top means that it's just going to be rearranging cards. Um, Lodestone Bobble being worse than Mishra's and Urza's in needing <laughs> mana here is particularly punishing. Uh, it's nice to have the Polymorph, but it's not super useful. And also having Polymorph in this hand would encourage you to leave your Lodestone Bobble around so that you can do Polymorph things with it, which is not going to be possible because you really need to see more cards with this hand. So I would ship this back and probably keep it on six. This hand like kind of seems sick. Like it kind of seems like it's going to do stuff and it has everything that you might want conceptually, right? It's got some selection. It's got a couple of fast rocks. It's got interaction. It's got counter magic and it has one of your combo pieces. Uh, but it's real slow. Like it doesn't do fuck all for like three turns. I mean, what you're going to play Island and then top and then on turn two, you're going to activate top, I guess, in your upkeep and hope that again, hope as a strategy here to like hit some piece of ramp or something on the, in the only three cards you can see with no shuffler. I mean, yeah, it just seems, seems good. Doesn't work, right? Like <laughs> this, this pact of negation also is super awkward. And I actually find this, this counter specifically to be, awkward a lot in, in protecting early hands because like if you and especially in protecting Urza because like if you're trying to cast Urza and you have Pact of Negation it's really awkward because if you don't resolve Urza you're not going to have the mana to use or pay for Pact and you're just going to lose anyway so uh, yeah I don't know this this has all the right elements but the wrong cards I guess uh, so I would also throw it back is there is there a hand size that either of you would um, keep this hand on? Yeah, I, I generally don't mulligan uh, lower than six. So if I got this this on six, I would probably keep it. Yeah. I, and I think on Sinibi's point, the the yeah, one hundred percent. I agree. Just because. Yeah. Dead. The rest of your cards are yeah. in some form, you know, card advantage, I guess, and you want to. Um, especially if you're already on six or, or or five, possibly you want to be keeping those. So yeah, definitely packed goes. God, and and just think about how much better this is if this is like a bauble or any other zero drop other than lodestone. Like, geez. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there's there's some cards which are definitely better. Here, oh right? yeah, <laughs> that'd be that'd be okay. Yeah, <laughs> that would make this end much better. Uh, that's the uh, that's that's hope talking. Yeah. Hope, uh, hope is piping so, up a lot in this podcast. <laughs> so we actually came to a consensus there, which is great. Um, I think uh, so. I guess to move on, uh, our last hand here is Trinisphere, uh, Mana Drain, Grim Monolith, Mox Opal, Land, Land, Preordain. Uh, yeah, can we keep this?
I would uh, I would also keep this hand. It has just very good card quality. Um, it also has enough artifacts to make your Mox Opal live, which is going to be very important. It feels bad, and I think that the reason that we kept this hand around was because this is a hand in which you're not developing Urza before your disruptive pieces. You're going to develop your Trinisphere first. Um, but then it does leave you with three mana, hoping to then on turn three have had a land in those three draws and looked at more with Preordain to, to play your turn three Urza behind uh, Trinisphere. And from that point, you can use your... From that point, you can use your mana drain to to prevent people either interacting with Trinisphere or trying to go off on their own, which would be hard through Trinisphere. So this uh, this hand is really interesting to me. I, I I think it really depends if I if I whether or not I keep this hand completely depends on the pod and my read of the pod. I think just because like I love jamming turn one Trinisphere uh, or turn two Trinisphere. Like, don't get me wrong. I think this is super powerful just in the fact that you can uh, turn one Preordain, turn two uh, Trinisphere, and then turn the the Opal on, like, and then have the ability to, like, like you said, follow it up with Urza. All of that is very likely given how many cards you're going to see plus the Preordain. Um, the thing is, after you do that, you are really going to sit around for a while, right? Like you're, you're in this for the long haul. So if I'm playing against like decks that I know that break, uh, over the long game, like if I'm playing against like, uh, Keizer Kima, uh, food chain or something like this is a great hand. Cause there's no way they're getting out of this, uh, at any point. Um, if I'm playing against like, like what you mentioned earlier, Keegan, if there are like multiple mid rangey decks, if there's like medium decks at the table or, you know, multiple Thrasios decks. Uh, I, I think this is generally just kind of a bad deck or a bad hand against Thrasios decks because those decks are going to, you know, play uh, Thrasios for three mana and then just sit there and activate Thrasios around Trinisphere and like not give a fuck. And they're going to hit way more card selection and card draw than you are, and they're going to win. Um, so yeah, I think it really, it really depends. Um, I think most of the time. Yeah. This is also a hand that benefits greatly from earlier... I mean, Trinisphere in general is much better yeah. if you're yeah, early yeah. in turn order. I mean, any card is better if you get to develop it first, but this if you can get this down before people have gotten a chance to get more than one dork in play... Yeah, I was 100% going to say the same thing. If you're playing first, this is 100% keepable because yeah. you have the Trinisphere going into your opponent's second turn rather than it going into their third turn which is huge, especially if they're trying to resolve um, a card advantage engine. Uh, and also, um, I'm definitely always looking for an opportunity to land my commander without any interaction or any particular you know, trouble. And Trinisphere into Urza is, I think, a great sequence. Um, possibly a notable exception to Keegan's rule, which is where you kind of want to play your stacks afterwards. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's great here, because it just, it's a defense grid. Trinisphere in general in this deck is, I, I like, I have a hard time uh, believing that people were playing without it. It just is so strong for what this deck wants to do, because you can turn it off when you need to, and like when you're trying to win, um, or like if you're getting ready to, you sculpt your hand and then, you know, bouncy boy around it. I, I, yeah, it just is like one of the better cards in this deck, in my opinion, because, like, you don't need to go that fast, and most of the other decks in the format are not designed to play around Trinisphere, so. 
I'm in full agreement. Uh, this was, I believe, included in the day one version of UPS. Yeah. Um, it's not in all of the versions. A notable exclusion is a video that West Coast Commander came out with, where instead of Trinisphere, they, they played a Tangle Wire um, as an early game piece of disruption. Uh, I think Trinisphere is, is a lot better yeah. than Tangle Wire. Um, notably, also, you can two of your combos still work yeah. in Trinisphere. Power Artifact Grim Monolith is a, a barely affected by it at all, so that's just phenomenal if you can punch through it. Uh, and in rare circumstances, well, maybe not super rare, in certain circumstances in which you have an extra three mana for your ISO rev combo, it does work. Um, yep. It's 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 so hard to say when you should and shouldn't tap Trinisphere. Uh, from personal experience, uh, experience, I barely ever tap Trinisphere, but a good way to gauge that is look at the faces of your opponents, and if they seem devoid of life, just keep <laughs> doing what you're doing. <laughs> so yeah, it's a man, it's a man after my own heart. Being that I play Heliod too, that is a that is definitely a way to play <laughs> stacks. Like if you if your opponents are just wearing their despair on their face, you are doing it right. It's a good politic tool as well, Trinisphere. Uh, if somebody develops a number of scary permanents, then you can look at someone and something people like to say is, hey, could you tap down that Trinisphere? Uh, make sure that they give you concrete, <laughs> a concrete list of things that they're going to do specifically. Um, because if they just say something, maybe I can deal with them. And then they just cast a demonic tutor. It's like, yeah, I have something. And this counterspell will deal with them. It's like, well, that, that wasn't really worth it for me. But if you can extract from someone a promise that they'll turn will include spells which interact with your opponents, especially if this person is immediately to your right, then tap it down, have your opponents fight each other, and then it goes back online. Nice. Um, any kind of general... Um, I mean, we talked about um, our game plan, um, but are there any other general kind of components of a keepable hand that uh, you guys want to mention? Yeah, it the, at the point where I'm I'm looking at fewer than six cards, my my plan is basically just to find mana into a wheel because yeah. you, you can't win going into the mid game if you've been making steady land drops because you'll you'll just be on well you'll have to have been making steady land drops but you'll just be yeah like exactly cards in hand which is not well it's like liar's dice you you can't represent anything if you don't have enough resources so there's no value even there. Uh, it, you, you, there's narrow situations you can claw your way back in, but basically, once you're below six, just try and rehash your hand. Like just just dig for something that uh, gets you back to seven. So then, at that point, prioritize card selection. I uh, one note on that. Uh, I think that card advantage is much more important than card selection in this deck for the sheer. Uh, reason that you vomit your hand into play and you're playing a lot of permanence like we talked about teferi a little bit like the the new teferi new fairy 
um, that that loots right and can do phasing things. And it seems like this card would be good, but it isn't because we don't really need card selection as much as we need like actual card advantage. Much of our position is based on you know playing lots of permanents and then interacting with the stack or interacting with other people's game plans, and none of that really profitably draws you cards and you don't really need to like have better selection because you've been vomiting so many cards into play. You need to have actual advantage. You need to be like actually properly drawing cards. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have enough cards in your hand to draw very many. Yeah. And it is kind of inherently a win more card. Uh, but what's on, great about on, it is like it okay. does have um, the it doesn't have kind of the usual downside of win more cards where it's purely a win more card. It is ultimately just a land you need it to be. I have a feeling that in the games I I've played a, over a dozen games now with this in my deck, and just that's the way she goes. I have never seen it in any of them, so it's hard for me to comment. But it also feels like a card to me that I would only ever cast as a spell one in a hundred games. So it's just so hard to evaluate because I'm going to want to play it as a land, and it did be, it was swap for a land almost always. Um, so at that point, like you're you're including something for such narrow advantages, and it's hard to tell how advantageous those are in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yep. and then I'll, I've also seen the argument of well, you can. Um use Urza's ability and then if you flip into it you can cast it well at, when you are at a point uh, where you have five mana open and nothing else to do with it uh, instead of uh, except of uh, using Urza you won't pretty much won't have enough cards in hand to make that card worth it or any good do you know what yep. the, the secret advantage of this is is that you can mystical tutor for a land <laughs> Wow! Uh, what a play! <laughs> Physical tutoring for Lila. yeah. You know what? Forget counter magic. Forget like actual time twister. Fuck that! No. I want a land. Exactly. Yeah. If you are yeah. not using mystical tutor for uh, secret restoration, you are pretty much just wrong. Uh, maybe if you have like a wheel in hand, you're just like, I just need one extra land. I have everything else. Again, you, you, have to, you have to really bend over backwards. Oh my god! The situation. Yeah, I feel really? like this is. I feel like doing this is just. It's straight up a flex. It is like the kind of play you make to like really just flex on the table. Like, yeah, you know what I could do? I'm I'm in such an advantage position. You know what? I would make that play after resolving recurring insight and drawing fourteen cards. I would totally do that, right? Like, I, I, I would just just flex on you. I don't know if I would do that if I intended on keeping the hand that I had because uh, Mystical Tutor represents one of three instants in Sorcery Tutors and that's just so premium. That's what I mean. It's like the ultimate flex. (laughs) You just just do it so you can show your knowledge of the rules. Definitely. Double face cards work. Definitely closing in on the hope section of this (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Use mixture into a counterspell. It's also oh, yeah. yeah, but why not turn your muddle the mixture into a merchant scroll into a mystical tutor into a land, right? That's yeah, mystical tutor for the merch uh, for the muddle the mixture, then muddle mixture for the merchant scroll. <laughs> I've demonstrated a loop. Best tutor line ever. 
Well, that's, I think, a great bow on the end of uh, <laughs> How to Mulligan. Uh, we have uh, one last major topic here, but before we get into that, um, we're doing a, a special episode first, which is a gut check. And uh, this is true to the original spirit of the gut check, where they have absolutely no idea, and we are not going to be preparing answers for this one, like we have in the, the past few, as, as Keegan pointed out in the pre-show. So um, let me just launch it. Um, the rules are um, you get a, a brief few seconds to think about it, and then uh, we'll go in our, our regular order to, uh, to give our answers. So what is the best non-artifact, non-combo card in the deck? Mm, time twister. Yeah. I'm, so I'm I was thinking about wording <laughs> this, and I, I think time twister in this context, um, you can't consider the fact that it is a part of your combo. But if you want to call it as a generic wheel, then um, that's totally cool. Three mana draw seven does exactly what this deck needs so much. So I, I, I know it's not very uh, creative. So I'll I'll just say, time twister and or mana crypt. Not artifact. Oh, time twister it is. Yeah, time twister. Uh, <laughs> you know, actually, I think I would go for cyclonic rift. Um, I I feel like cyclonic rift has won me as many games as any of the other cards in the deck. To be totally honest, like this deck does a lot of stalling and getting the deck the game to a place where people can kind of like slowly accumulate things on board and you just get into the situation where people try to out stacks each other and that card for me is a very frequent tutor target and overloading it is a great feeling i love overloading psychonic rift so i'll say i'll say c rift just to uh diverge from the t twister one of my uh favorite mono blue combos <laughs> is psychonic rift into windfall it's oh, gotta baby. be oh yeah gotta be out let's there let's go yeah uh, Cyclonic Rift into Windfall is especially spicy because then you draw like twenty cards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it it's nuts if you can pull it off one hundred percent. There may be paying lip service here to Back to Basics as the only piece of stacks that doesn't fall under the artifact thing, but the trouble is Back to Basics doesn't hit well <laughs> other artifacts or creatures, which almost every other deck runs. Yeah. So it's not it's not the hard lock it may seem to be. Um, also, I guess, special shout-out to uh, Ristic Study and or Mystic Remora, if you're able to land them on turn one or two. They're just insane. Uh, the other the other card my brain actually went to was Mystic Sanctuary. Seriously. Like, I I went... I thought I did the same thing. I went like, okay, Time Twister, Cyclonic Rift, and then Mystic Sanctuary was the third one. So I guess my next gut check is, if you had to choose exactly one card that's at a 100% must, which card would it be? Mystic Sanctuary. <laughs> I, can't, I can't in good consciousness tell people to go out and buy a Time Twister. It feels so bad. Yeah, so that... in that case, I'll just say Tabernacle. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you to buy Twister, so instead, buy Tabernacle. <laughs> uh, nice. I think that's yeah. pretty true. Gilda Drake is... It, like, just one of those cards, man, that, like... I, I'm, I think it may be a bit irrational with it, because I'm like... I, I struggle to put even like four CMC creatures into my decks because I know other people have Gilded Drakes. 
I played uh, Homeward Path for a while because of how backbreaking everyone killed and Drake might or is yeah. well, I'm still playing Homeward Path. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I get Christ. it. I get it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, it's, I mean, if, if we're talking deck specific, a 100% must for a polymorph deck is Tide Spout Tyrant. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, outside of the really obvious <laughs> stuff, I, I think that if you're if you're asking about cards that you should splurge on that dramatically increase the deck's viability and power level, uh, Mana Crypt and Transmute Artifact are definitely on there. Time yeah. Spiral also. Um, these are cards that like are old, are hard to get, but that are absolutely like the core of the deck. Grim Monolith as well. You know, like some of these you're going to have to spring for, and they are, they do make the deck consistent, and they do increase your density of wins, and they are like some of the best cards in the deck. Yeah, I, amongst my two highest tutor targets are easily Mana Crypt and uh, yeah, Time Twister. Just because I agree. They, they, they mitigate the problems that Mono Blue has in ramping and in card advantage, respectively. Yep. Yeah, and you know, one easy tip to get yourself your hands on a Time Twister is to just skip four months of rent and live on the street and then ultimately buy your favorite piece of cardboard. <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't even think four months of rent is... <laughs> I feel like after living on the street I that long, your favorite so. piece of cardboard has to be the one that's like over your head, preventing you from getting rain yeah. on <laughs> It's the sign that's asking for free coffee, yeah. <laughs> Again, I know we don't want to dip into budget, but I do want to suggest very briefly, if you if you can't afford a time twister or a time spiral, and you still want to do compact twister loops, uh, that's totally possible, and you can do it using um, dueling scepters and putting Narset's reversal underneath, uh, as well as just targeting your wheel effects, specifically, well, time spiral, which I suppose is, is cheaper than... Uh, Time Twister with Narset's Reversal over and over again. Uh, and lastly, you can take the Ultra Spicy Midnight Clock and Bounce Spell route when you go off. Yep. So <laughs> if you don't have a spare four grand lying around, there's options. And, nice. and to be fair, they're not, it's not like all that bad. You know, it's, it's one of those things where you're winning the game already anyway. You just need a way to do the little looping. Like one of these cards will suffice. It's just, nothing the rest of the time and that's kind of why twister is irreplaceable so all right so let's move into questions um before this episode we pulled uh kind of an urgency the uh rizza server for um questions they'd like to ask us and we we got two here so let's let's jump into them so friend of cats today says in relation to Beltrandito's question, how do you respond to a meta that is highly resilient and active against Urza? Example, Akes, Thrastimna, and Yisun Pod, or uh, just running against decks that often are able to find and use silver bullet cards against Urza frequently. Okay, I, th I think we already uh, dipped into that, but it comes down to collusion, I think. Um, you have to make allies and uh, lay low so you aren't the person being targeted and then look for the best window. And also on that note, I would like to add that I don't think that Yisan is such a bad match matchup for us. Uh, I think that uh, Thrasios, Timna, midrange is very hard to deal with. And uh, Cass, for example, is pretty easy to deal with. Uh, if you are on uh, UPS, you can put a Graftigger's Cage into play very early and try to protect it, because the deck runs very little um, artifact removal. 
That being said, if Collusion is like one of the best tactics of, of Urza, then I think Yasan is the worst possible matchup because it's hard to say just don't use your deck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Please don't I... activate your commander's ability. Yasan appears to be a terrible matchup and it will often make you lose, but I think that communication here is key because in making you lose, Yasan will just kill itself. Um, they have a thousand tools to make your life miserable and it's hard for you to it's hard for you to win if they choose to target you with them but at the time that they're basically just throwing you off the edge of a cliff they kind of are jumping off with you as well so it, it suffers a bit of a blood pot dilemma again with yasan is a great deck to make somebody else win um for for deck building on how to get around a hateful metagame would be to move away from a reliance on commander-based synergies and add more cards which have uh, high power level baked into them themselves. Um, I, if, if this is the metagame you're describing, then I actually think that uh, something like UPS might be better situated and then just toss in some cards which have a good card advantage in them, like you know, the, the, the mages to search for your pieces for good card selection. Uh, perhaps something yep. like Thieving Skydiver or Thada Adele to, to steal stuff and just be quality, and then you can put in some Haymakers. I would lean more towards Consecrated Sphinx than Dead Eye Navigator, but you have options. <laughs> Not me, man! Not me! <laughs> I, I actually do agree, though, with you about uh, UPS being a little bit better into those types of metas. Like, the fact that you can tool more with creatures and you can run things like Consecrated Sphinx and Deadeye Navigator is kind of interesting in that regard, but I can't, you know, most of the time that I play blind, I would just much rather be on Polytyrant because it gives you more ability to win out of nowhere and otherwise has all the same upsides, but if, if you know what you're getting into and you know that creatures are going to be really relevant, I think playing UPS is just a much better decision. Like, you will just have more longevity throughout the game you get to play more ways to tutor the hate pieces that you need uh you get to play metamorph and gilded drake um and then yeah you get access to stuff like consecrated sphinx which is also just one of those amazing draw this card play this card win the game see that's that's a card i do not play because i've never seen it stick around more than like one turn and maybe two before it gets targeted and removed and i also i do not want to be the main target of the of the table. Nice. Um, let's move on to the next one. Uh, so Fonzie from Mox Diamond Gaming asks, obviously playing mono blue means there's usually a greedy counterspell package included in the build. However, in this current combo-centric meta based around Dockside, would it be more efficient to build a faster build with a leaner counterspell package? Okay. I feel like we did. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but I have really strong opinions about this. We don't go fast. Like, if you want to go fast, Mono Blue is not the deck to do it in. Every other deck in the format goes under you. So trying to do something faster by omitting the strongest things that we can do in Monocolor by leaning into artifacts and playing lots of disruption is just wrong. Like, you just can't go as fast as Turbo Dockside, Turbo Naws, and the Farm decks. Like, we will never do it and trying to do that just like gets rid of all of the really good stuff you can do that synergizes with artifacts um so this is actually this is a very valuable question because it's something that we've experimented a lot with um together we've yep. taken out 
large clumps of cards and replace them with others. And it seems decent on paper, but it, it plays out very, very poorly because it forces you into a play pattern of having to go all in early. And rarely you'll have enough protection to actually do that. And once you fail at it, that's your whole hand and you're out of the game. Um, to, to cite some some data-driven arguments, the, the absolute fastest I was able to build this deck was to average goldfish hands on turn 4.2, which is good, but not yeah, exceptional. I, yeah, I mean, look. Highly unrepresentative of an actual game state because naturally you can't just go off with no protection. We do not, we do yeah, not have dorks. We don't have uh, the best. So, of course, we do have rocks, obviously, but most of our artifacts only become good after Urza is out. So that's another issue. And then we do not have unconditional tutors. So whatever we yeah. get, so in Polymorph, you are able to get one one card win count, of course, but whatever we get, we are telegraphing it to the whole table, and then we will have vomited our hand out, um, have telegraphed our win con, and then most of the time do not have the interaction to protect it. Yep. Nice. Well, that about wraps it up. Um, if you guys have any final remarks or shout-outs, this is the time. Okay, so... I, I uh, think... Uh, yeah, you go ahead. No, 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 no go ahead. Uh, yeah, I would like to uh, give a shout-out to the Urza server. Please join us on Discord. Um, it's a very large community right now, and all the people are very nice over there, and they've accepted me and welcomed me very... Uh, yeah, very... Mm, What's the word I'm looking for? Openly, perhaps. perhaps. Yeah, that's the word. And it's it's a lot of fun. We have very constructive discussions over there about new cards, about spoilers. And yeah, please join the server. Um, similarly, thanks to everyone who's involved. Um, it's been a deck building process as a team. We've discussed with a huge number of people to test out ideas. People will test uh, new brews, new card packages, and then report back their findings. So it's a great place to get uh, the new cutting-edge technology. Um, there were an absolute ton of questions that poured out uh, when we asked, even at sh short notice. And while we obviously weren't able to address all of them, we tried to bake in answers just throughout the whole of the podcast. So I hope you were able to find the answers to the questions you're looking for. And then lastly, uh, I'd like to, to personally thank the uh, Queen's Magic the Gathering group because they are who got me into CEDH and have been a wonderful and supportive community throughout my time playing. I'll say uh, shout out to all the homies uh, on the Earth server, obviously. Um, Special also shout out to the uh, two other discords that I spend most of my time on. Um, that would be the Heliod discord. So shout out to all the mono white players who like to make people's lives miserable. <laughs> uh, congrats, Michael, on your, your recent uh, top four. Um, and then also shout out to the uh, food chain and uh, the Kazer Yukima food chain discord. Um, maybe more of a meme than uh, a constructive deck building community, but hey, that deck is rad and uh, We've got some spice that uh, I think makes makes worth calling out to all the people over there. Is uh, it's a they're a good group of people. Um, so just wanted to say that quickly. Nice. And if you guys have uh, you the listeners have any questions in regards to what we've talked about, 
uh, definitely reach out on either the Urza server or, um, of course, the Into the North server. So that about wraps it up for this episode. Uh, thank you again to our excellent guests, and we hope uh, you listeners were able to deepen your understanding of the deck and that you enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you would like to reach out to us with any questions, comments, or concerns, you can contact us on Twitter, Twitter at Into the North Pod via our email into the North Podcast at gmail.com or on our Discord server, the invite link for which can be found in the description of this episode. Uh, an extra special thanks to all of our patrons who help cover the expenses of our show and allow us to work towards improving the quality of the podcast. If you would like to become a patron, we are at patreon.com slash into the north podcast. Thank you as always to the band Vox Cadre and our lovely podcast music, uh, for our lovely podcast music, pardon, uh, to Nate Slover for our equally lovely podcast logo and to our long-suffering podcast editor, Roadkill. Uh, next episode will be out in a few weeks. Until then, see ya later.